Hey, Internet, we are almost ready to go live here. He is risen. You are paid for. That makes you immortal now, and he's not going to be long anyway. You found the Mad Christian Saturday morning. Chill. Stick around, stick around, stick, uh, stick, uh, stick around. Hey, Internet, you are paid for. Uh, oh, oh, no, no. Yes, you're paid for. He is risen. I know that's true as well. Are we there? We're good. Hey, Internet, where are we? Right here. He is risen. You are paid for. Jesus Christ is not going to be long in returning. He has made you immortal. I flipped it around. It's still true. You're baptized. You're washed. You're holy waterfied. You're put into the words of Jesus, declaring to you once and for all that he has risen for you. He feeds you with this knowledge that comes to you not only as knowledge, but also as devotion, according to the sacramental, the mysterious gift of his body and the bread and wine. And of course, that makes Christians Christians. That is Christianity, and you're here to cling to that because the world, as you are watching, is is not doing that much at all these days, right? It is it is spinning completely out of control. It is the madhouse out there. And if you want to be the sane person, then you're gonna look like the Mad Hatter, right? So how's our sound doing? Have you got a chance to look at that at all? I, I want to make sure that, that my mic is actually coming through. We got a new mic again, and it's super cool, but it sounds really weird. I hear a big echo for me. Um, do you hear? What do you hear, my friend? I got. Uh, we got to double check this. Yeah. Put it. Go ahead. Uh, talking. So, is there an echo coming through at all for you there? Do you hear, or is it just? It's just me. Okay. Cool. So we're good. We're good. We got lots of questions. Your questions, Bible's answers, and our nonsense coming your way today. Uh, things about divorce. Things about psychology and demonology, uh, and then more, and then more. We're going to start this morning with um, with this thought. I mean, I mentioned demonology a second ago. It's dark arts fighting the dark powers, whatever you want to call it in your fantastic little head. The fact is we've been fighting the dark powers, the principalities, the demons, the whole time. That has always been the Christian battle. Our wrestling is not against flesh and blood. The last years, uh, 100 years or so of Christianity, however, have largely been battles against flesh and blood. They have been battles for uh, principal power in the world, for notoriety, for fame, for understanding. Not content to be an ark, ferrying through a flood that doesn't care about us, but picking up like a dragnet the faithful fish along the way. Uh, we wanted instead to create machinations, manipulations, in order to make God's work work better and go further. As a result, we have bought into hook, line, and sinker. And 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, the Enlightenment's proposition that the only things are real are the things you can see, and that there is nothing unseen that you can't test with your brain as a superman, because you are, of course, the ubermensch, the modern man, right? That is the lie. That is what has proven itself to be a lie. That is why the language isn't working, why the communication systems are breaking down, why men's love have grown cold, why neighbors don't trust neighbors. It is because we've been fighting the demons all along and we stopped fighting the demons. We stopped fighting the powers and principalities. And as you'll see today, when people talk about these things, they want to talk about what's out there. And they forget that the true fight, the true fight is in your heart. It's in your mind. It's over your flesh. The principal enemy, the principality that is first set against you is you, not the Christian. You, the old man who is perishing. You, the body of death, soul of death tied right to it, that you were born, that without Jesus is as good as a demon except fleshly, like of the flesh, like made physically, as opposed to just spiritual. Sons of the devil is what Jesus calls the Pharisees. 
That's what we are by nature, right? And our wrestling now, our life of faith is not one of superpowered overcoming. I never find that I'm such a bad guy again. No, it's the other way around. It's the fight of realizing that the first enemy is my heart because my heart would would prefer to care about itself and not anybody else. The first question is, what about me? That principality, once begun to be taken captive, once you start to say, oh, heart, you know what? That's a lie. I'm not going to listen to you. Why am I not going to listen to you, heart? Because you just said something the Bible doesn't say. And so, you know, forget you, heart. I'm going to listen to the Bible instead and compel you. I'm going to write into you. I'm going to inscribe into you as in stone the words of this scripture so that you, heart, don't get to run me. But that the word of Jesus Christ runs the heart that runs me. And what you'll find then is how much the battle against principalities and powers is in fact everywhere right now with not like big flashy demons and guns, although on the other side of the country right now, that sure seems to be the way it's working out. Uh, uh, Not country, excuse me. On the other side of the planet, other side of the planet, flip all the way around. But the real battle again is against words. What words are you letting the demons tell you to think because you don't think there's demons? You think it's just entertainment. (laughs) Yeah, entertainment. Yeah. I just need to relax tonight. I need to turn my brain off. Let the demons talk to me for a little bit. It's okay, everybody? I'm going to do that. I'm going to drink while I do it, too. That way I won't, I won't even notice or something. I mean, that's, that's the reality here, right? The, the fights against the demons, and the demons work through words. They work through information. Info, formation. In, formation. It's like all the same thing, right? Knowledge. But it goes in, and it does stuff to you. And that's where the powers and principalities that are above this present darkness is where they most actively engage the tickling, the tempting, the taunting, the entwining of your flesh by appealing to what your heart most wants to lie to you about. If you're not going to fight back, then you're not going to fight back. And that's going to be what it is. How do you fight back? Well, the word of Jesus, (laughs) you know, uh, the word of God, the Bible itself. Sons of Solomon, have you heard of them? Yes, you have. If you're in it, great. If you're not, you should. It's not that hard. You don't have to do anything more than pray nine psalms a day, carry a Bible and a crucifix. I know the crucifix is kind of hard for some people. Well, the Bible's kind of hard for some people. But, like, just start with the psalms then. If you can't do that, if you can't do anything else, just pray those nine psalms with the rest of us men who are going to pray those nine psalms when the world ends because we know that it can't hurt. Because we know that having our mind formed by something consistent and stable that will never change, that we have such a leg up on everybody else when we walk out the door, They're all running around in change, in chaos. When you're a son of Solomon, you can walk around on solidarity. Not only with every other son of Solomon who, being in those same psalms every day, has his mind, his heart, his life formed by what they promise him he's going to be in Jesus Christ, but then also, when you walk out, you're a light in the midst of darkness. You're trailing the grace of Jesus everywhere you go, and if you get on your lips outside your doors, by all means, you're the body of Christ preaching at that point. You are the God proclaiming what the heavens have declared forever, but now is made made manifest and the death and resurrection of Jesus. Just by opening your mouth and reading those psalms out loud as you stop at a stoplight or something like that, right? Now, that's the beginning. That's like, let's flick this little thing and see what happens if it rolls down the hill. Trust me, though. The word of God will not disappoint you. The word of God will not disappoint you. And so if we're going to fight back against these demons, the way we do it is by replacing their words with our words. Not our words, but our Lord's words, right? Which then are our words. So language matters, The decay of tongues matters. What they're doing to English out there right now, the demons, it matters. And what they're doing is they're devaluing it. They're making it so it's less communicative. They're making it so it's jumbled and blurry. There's no he or him anymore, right? That's where it's going, okay? So with them doing that, we as Christians must realize we're not going to go with that train. 
We're not going to ride that boat. We're not going to listen to their teaching because their teaching is not just flawed like, oh, they added up the math wrong, although they're going to do that too because they're forgetting what plus means. The society is forgetting how to do arithmetic and read and think in a straight line and is learning to be driven by images that are populated to move them as a mob. You don't want any of this. You don't want any of this. You want to have your mind formed by things that never change, the eternal word of God, right? So again, we've been fighting the demons the whole time. If you think it looks bad, it's because we stopped praying the Psalms, people. I'm not saying that everything out here relies on our works. I'm saying that the grace which God pours into our hearts creates the work of praying the Psalms against the evil. That's the battle. That's the joy. That's the repentance. That's the fight. It's the life. And what we've done is set up shop, put up our feet, and said, you know, we got it pretty good here. Let's even get a bigger house for the kid. You know? Where are we? Where are we? Why are we here? To buy better stuff? Oh, my goodness. Hmm. The good thing about right now and the affliction that everybody's feeling somewhere, somehow, and it doesn't matter what side of the quote-unquote aisle you're on, everybody's afflicted right now. The good thing about affliction is that it makes good people go back to the Bible. It makes Christians go to the Bible. Affliction makes you go to the Bible because you're like, oh, this, my life, uh, maybe my God will help me. I'll open the Bible. And then like, like it's good. Like this is what, this is why he does this to big groups of people. You can read the Old Testament just over and over again. They're like, well, we don't really need the Bible. He's like, well, then have some suffering. I'll remove my hand of protection. They're like, we need the Bible again. No, tell us, tell us, speak to us, you know, help us. So this is the good thing. You know, that when the fiery serpents prick you with their poisonous venom in the desert, it is unto your repentance, which is always a joy. It's always a joy. It, it, it is a bitter cup to taste. It looks like, like, here's the cup of repentance. This is a C.S. Lewis thing, right? It's, 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 a, it's a glass of wine. And it looks like crap. It looks like the, it doesn't why wine. It's, it's bubbly, frothy. It's got like goober in it. Like someone hacked a loogie sitting right in the top. I mean, it looks horrible. It's like, what is this, this cup of repentance? If you will drink it, it is so good. You will, you'll, you'll like take the sip and you, I won't, I won't take all that, please. Because what happens is once you finally say no to you, again, this is back to that heart thing, right? My heart feels this way. Well, forget you, heart. Once you do this, the other side of that's called freedom. Freedom of conscience. Freedom of integrity. Again, freedom of heart. Heart set free by knowing it's not up to it. We're going to have some questions about sin today, and it's really important. That we get this idea that like, oh, we're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump ahead to this one a little bit here. Where'd it go? Somebody today, we're going to come back to this, is worried that my emotions are sinful. Now, let's think about this for a second. I mean, do you believe in original sin? You know what that means? Right? That we're all born sinful and unclean. That by nature, thought, word, and deed, we are not only unregenerate, we are reprobate. We are uh, not just not sacred. We are profane. And then the salvation of us is by faith alone. That is, it's a work done outside of us. And the only way we know it's true is we trust it. And then by trusting it, which again is given to us to do by its own power, it inspires us to do that. By trusting it, there's then a platform created for enacting self-control right, uh, on yourself. So, But the, the, when you start to enact self-control and you find out you have emotions that you can't control, does that mean like your emotions are sinful in a new way or that there's some kind of thing you're going to do to stop your emotions from being sinful. You're fighting the wrong battle. Your emotions 
of sin, that is, things you do which create shame, will keep happening the rest of your life. And if you're trying to get to a point where, ah, I see, my mic, your mic was picking up me. I heard it just go out. And if you're... Um, if you're trying to get through life with a pure heart, meaning that there never arises out of it anything that you would be like, well, heart, that's wrong, so shut up and go away. I'm going to do the right thing anyway and not care what you feel like for three hours because this is truth instead, right? That's called repentance again. If you think you're going to go through life without that and only good things are going to arise out of your heart, you've got a long and painful head-bumping road ahead of you because God's just going to keep saying, well, if you think you're going to be sinless, I'll just show you more of your sin because there's more than you know. Like by the time you die... If it's 80 years from now or whatever, like there's still more sin you won't know about. Like you will have hidden sin. You will have things in your heart that you've harbored that you're unaware of. And if it's up to you to cleanse that, see you later, baby. You're done. You're done. But see, this is Jesus. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says uh, that he was perfect, cast the first stone. And no one's even gotten close to this mark. All have fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible says. <laughs> and, and in this then, um, the freedom of conscience to exercise self-control in the faith which rests upon the election of Jesus Christ of you means that you're going to find things in your heart on a daily basis that are sinful. And rather than worrying about them being sinful, don't act on it. Don't talk with it unless you're talking with a close friend about how you're repenting of it and striving to align your heart with what you know the Bible says instead. Because even though you might not even like what the Bible says and said, Proverbs 31, anybody? Anybody? Proverbs 31? Okay, so you might not even like it. But you know what? That's because your heart's wrong. And when you let your heart be wrong, when you don't be afraid, you might find sin in your heart. But when you know you're going to, and like, ha, I got you. Shut you down. Back to the text. That's self-control. And it's the power of self-control not only then in that moment, but then what happens as the word goes in, as the word goes in, as the word goes in, you end up in the world and you hear something happen, the word comes out. Now, if all you're doing is not putting word in, well, (laughs) why do you feel the way you do? Hard times make the good king search for glory in what God has hidden in the scriptures. That makes all good people in the suffering look for the antidote of Jesus Christ and his word, which includes the wisdom of how to walk in this life in the scriptures. Good times tend to make us bored with God, and so God tends to have to let the good times not roll once they get as weird as they are right now. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so uh, let's see here. We've been fighting demons the whole time. Eh, did that one. It's true. It's true. Powers and principalities. Got to get back to that. It's, that's the only fight we have. Do you have an enemy who's a man? You know why? Because there's demons behind him somewhere. They might not be, like, possessing him. They're afflicting his life. He might be, in fact, a Christian who's also afflicted. Yeah? So pray against the evil. Pray against the darkness and know that the sword of the Spirit, which is the Holy Word of God, that is lambasted across the New Testament as an idea, means that the Old Testament's your book, and there is a prayer book in the Old Testament for fighting demons. It's called the Psalms. It is a prayer book for fighting the evil. You're like, well, it's it's not for fighting demons. It's just for fighting your sin. Like, you're a modernist. You don't even know where we live. You don't know what planet we're on. I mean, when the barbarians come, you're not ready. Be ready for the old gods, because we have one. We have the big one. We have the actual even Tulu, I talk about this guy, no one knows who he is. Okay, so there's this, this like, cosmic horror is a, a version of literature, sci-fi. I don't, I don't even like it, but it, there's this maddening, great, evil, old thing. He's not the only one, but as far as we're concerned, we're so small and, you know, 
Pisanti that that it is the only one. It is this Cthulhu or Cthulhu, however you want to pronounce it. I don't even know. I learned about it through Munchkin, which is a card game making fun of the dang thing. So anyway, but the idea of this guy is though he's this great tentacled, extended, maddening, chaotic beast of nothing. Sounds like what we're up against, actually. But at the same time, that great maddening, chaotic beast of nothing is not the devil. No, no, no. The actual old one, the actual cosmic power that's moving all things through an insanity that no one can see and they're all running around, yet you might be brought to actually see him and see his insanity in one great moment. That's actually Jesus and his insanity is mercy and grace. So it doesn't matter what way you want to use that type. That's the cosmic battle we're in. There's a great, what, kraken-sucking, leviathonic, dragon-squid, abyss monster trying to swallow all of us, and God's going to burn it to a crisp. So he's like, come to me and find the mystery behind your suffering. Look, I, the man on the cross who am the God of sorrows, not forever but for now to save you from yours. Oh, tell me you don't want to jump on that team. Tell me you don't want to live in a world that thinks and feels like that as opposed to one that's run by, what, bullet points. Projected screens, pocket protectors, traffic, cubicles. One more good movie. That'll fix it, right? That'll fix it. Oh, damnation comes later, shame comes now. That's this is good too, and then we'll move into into the questions. Um Remember that like hell is the final result of evil. So, so in order for God to be good, because he is, and he declares this, as he's saying, this is who I am, I will remove evil. That sounds stunning, right? It's like, wow, look at that guy. I, I will remove evil. So to do that, he then takes e- semi-eternal, uh, created, spiritual, amazing, powerful things we can't understand, cosmic principalities, all this, and he's going to put them in a fire pit which is going to glorify him forever and ever. Now, this is this is like one of the hardest things. You're like, well, in hell, I know in hell, in heaven, will we be able to see hell? Well, uh, the parable of Lazarus, which may or may not be about the final times, um, implies you can even talk to them, which is weird. Um, that may not. It's just a parable. But but here's the thing. I mean, Revelation is very clear. The smoke of her fire goes up forever and ever, and like Alleluia, we sing praises. So remember that that hell is part of the gospel. That means hell is good news. Hell is the good news of the devil being drawn away from you, cast into the pit of fire he deserves, while you are saved like a slave, but entirely like, what, inhabited sort of um, uh, unto him, and yet you're, you're bought back from this by blood, like your bad blood was tied to the devil, and now you have new blood tied to the risen man. That damnation is good news. You're not damned. You're being saved from it. That's all coming later. Shame now. Shame comes now. Shame is like pre-damnation. Shame is the experience of your heart realizing damnation is deserved. Shame is the realization that you have done damnable things. That comes now to everybody. You can try to make your shame into your glory. It, It can be done. That leads to hell. The Christian, this is connected to this battle against sin that you were talking about, and our first question is going to get into this a little bit. The Christian finds the shame, and they don't like it. They don't want to try to make it go away by being okay with it. 
we actually want to get away from it. The place to get away from it is in the blood of Jesus again. To remember that under him, you got no time for shame. What you got time for is to see what's in front of you and do what's good for that person no matter how you feel. But realize then that's the fight you're in. You're in the fight of feeling shame now, which is knowledge of the worthiness of damnation. And the way you fight is by knowing it's a lie now. Shame to you is a lie now because you're in Jesus. And so you fight back by taking it captive, saying, I will not be ashamed. I am in Christ. And then remembering who's in front of me and what does the Bible say I should do to them, regardless of how I might feel at this moment. That all being said, I'm getting so hot. I'm going to close this window. Can you, can you reach and do it? There we go. Um, <laughs> we have, we're, we're down here in the basement in the, uh, the chrysalis, uh, I'm sorry, the chrysalis, uh, in the web, the web uh, of our house. And it gets really cold down here at night because we turn the air on so we all sleep upstairs right and then you know the air is set to you know 70 70 degrees um and then down here it's going to be much less than that uh so we opened the window this morning but now the what 85 degree outside is starting to creep on in on us so um we're gonna take our one minute break and be right back to take your questions with some bible answers and our nonsense here on the saturday morning chill with jonathan and meredith rock on Oh, here we're back. Mad Christian Saturday morning show with Jonathan and Meredith. Your questions, Bible's answers, some of our nonsense. We're going to do a little mic check here and let Meredith talk because we're we're switching mics around. And now, yes, that brings in so much more. Why don't you turn down the gain on your end? Let's see what happens if you do that. There we go. That helps. That yeah. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay. Yeah. Um, it might not be quite as loud as Do I am. you want it to be? Well, you want to now try to match your green, the green bar on the screen. That's telling, showing my sound. You want your sound to be kind of around the same place. Yeah. See. Okay. So when you talk, does it come to the same level? Okay. When I talk, it comes. No. Now it goes lower. Oh wow. Yeah. It doesn't. Okay. You're okay it though. It doesn't really pick. This me isn't up, too bad. No, it's picking it's you up good now. All. Where you just put it is good. This is a good spot. We're about yeah. equal, I think. Thank you for putting up with that technical difficulty. Mm-hmm. First question is going to be some super chats from last week. Fargo. Two of them? Yes. Um, um. You're all good. <laughs> okay, so it's going to be in Dark Shore 16. Oh, remember, so you're on, okay, you opened up Finder. On the upper left, There were always, I always put, Finder. Finder is the Apple folder looker, okay? Oh. Right, so it's this guy right here. And then I always put this one as a shortcut here, and I'll remove it. And it's called updated this week because it got updated and the title was made that way and stuff. Okay. And number one is a catch-all from last week's Super Chats. Thank you for the Super Chats. I I don't spend a lot of time looking or promoting Super Chats because Google takes such a giant chunk out of it. And they've also demonetized my station uh, because of I don't even know why I didn't look into it. Um, I don't mind. Uh, But... The point being, like, this would not be the way to support. If you want to support, uh, Patreon's the main way to do that. Uh, they also take a chunk of it, but it's always consistent in there. I understand that people want to give single one-time gifts. You can always send something to St. Paul Lutheran Church in Rockford, Illinois. You can find that online, sp815.org. Uh, or you can reach out to me via PayPal. Do that by going to revfist.com slash contact and asking about those credentials if that's how you'd prefer to give. Um, brum, 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 brum. Here we go. All right, so Super Chat from Jana says, I teach advanced English to a burned-out, formerly zealous Hindu who isn't sure he can believe anything anymore. I'm able to converse of Jesus, scriptures with him. He's receptive. Prayers for him to listen, investigate, and believe. Amen, amen. Yeah. That was that. And then David says, so Meredith can have her sewing room back. Continue to rock on, Rev. 
and new. right, right. So he's he's trying to buy us a new place with his nice. his gift. Yes, that, that was you. nice. Um, on the on the gentleman who's burned out. I mean, I don't I don't think like only Hindus have that possibility right now. I think anybody who's trying to take their religion seriously is going to be being burned out trying to find other people who take it seriously. Uh, right now, like everything's so convoluted, and again, who can you trust? There's a overwhelm that just is deadening hearts and deadening souls. Like in order to function survival style, like I'm going to eat today and get my kids to sports, we are shuttering our hearts. We are closing our ability to see each other. And as a result, we're not going to have much ability to understand or see the spiritual value of, of spirituality, God, right? There's not time for it. And I don't know what his experience was that, that broke him down. I mean, that's going to be a personal thing. But um, yeah, the only the only other piece there is remember that that Christianity is not about trying to talk somebody. <laughs> I wrote a book on it. Talk somebody into something as if you're going to get the right piece of information to kind of figure it out. Um, it's the solidarity of your knowing Jesus has risen from the dead. That faith which will bring you to believe and excuse me to speak about it in in any way that you can. That the Holy Spirit will work according to that according to his plan. And this will be either by bringing the man to repentance and faith uh, as God wills or by trapping him in his already chosen sin uh, as he hardens himself against it with his own will. Uh, and that that's not up to you to try to do. So God bless you for the prayers. And yeah, see the apathy and emptiness of his overwhelm. And we're going to have a question about being still and knowing God is God. I mean, that's what he's missing here in his, his approaches. His approaches have led him to believe he must climb. And, and the reality is he's dead man already. He feels that. He feels that. So what if there were a God who knew you were dead? Yeah. Um, but again, you're not going to find the fancy language to make it work. You're going to be the reader of Scripture who is inspired by God to speak at appropriate times, and he'll do the good with it as, as he needs to. So um, that doesn't mean don't fight the fight and make it come out of your mouth. It isn't easy. You keep praying like you are. Um, just don't carry too much on your shoulders, and God bless you for, for caring about him at all, seeing him for what he is. Yeah, cool. All right, so question A, A1, right, or A, um, A, no, A2? No, we have Jedi Knight Anakin Cringewalker. What's the chance that given... Yahweh has no consonants. Well, oh, right. The consonant, yeah. This is the Tetragrammaton. Has no consonants. Well, it has consonants, doesn't it? It has only consonants. Yeah. So <laughs> I was say, it replace no, it with vowels. No vowels. Pretend he said no Ding. vowels. That the name may be pronounced by simply a breath <gasps> in and out without vo- vocalization. <gasps> Yeah. Um, I don't know Hebrew well enough to know how that works, though. Nobody does. This is the problem. Hebrew is an ancient language. It's mostly lost. We've learned about it through documents from the 800s AD, which is just so late. And, like, it's awesome. And thank God for the Masoretes. And I pour over the Hebrew every day. But we don't understand it. We're beginning to. We have, like, grammar. We have uh, some vocabulary. But in terms of, like, how the lettering and breath working and, and all that would work, uh, what it was like as a living language— Gone, gone, and, and and even the um, the the vowel pointing uh, that the Masoretes give us is at best a commentary, and then uh, the consonant text that we have inherited from them, and you find similar things, although different versions often, like with discrepancies in the Dead Sea Scrolls and things like that. That lettering is post-Solomonic. Solomon used Phoenician lettering, or so we're told, right? So so the whole thing is like through a lens, and. 
I would say that lens is probably something like Daniel, <laughs> right? Uh, somewhere in there uh, during that XL time. So it's not a bad lens. But please understand, though, that we're just we're not going to get to how to pronounce the tetragrammaton. I mean, they, the Germans tried in the 1800s, and while they made a lot of mistakes, like that kind of narrow search is what they were great at. And yeah, they made a mistake, in fact, and then we figured it out later. But the, it's it's lost, and I think that's on purpose because we're supposed to lose it. Why? Because there's no name given under heaven by which men may be saved except for Jesus. And since Jesus has the tetragrammaton of Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, however you want to pronounce it, in side of his name as the fulfillment of all that that name ever meant. If you want to believe it was first a breath, that's fine. I mean, sure, you know, the word is always a breath with noise. But uh, I lost the conclusion because I went sideways on that. Um, Jesus is sufficient. The name is sufficient. And so we don't need to try to find what the Tetragrammaton was. We want to know that he is Jesus. And then from there, if you want to call him Yahweh, if you want to call him Jehovah, you know, along with Jesus, right? If you want to call him El Shaddai, if you want to call him God, the Lord, along with Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, like, that's great. But the name that's been given, right? Uh, the proclamative man was brought as Joshua, Jesus, Jesus. And again, pronunciation matters far less than that you are referring to him, son of David, son of Mary, right? Crucified, risen. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. so then Jay Dean has another question. Why was Saul's repentance in 1 Samuel 15 rejected by God? Oops, and I didn't turn my mic sound up because I No, you were good. I think you could be heard. Forgot. Because now it's... Now we got... Good. Is it echoing? Because we got a comment. Yeah, it is for me, but <sighs> it's my voice to you. Um, I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, or click yours off when you're not talking uh, for the moment. Um I think maybe if we put the mic on the other side of your head, that might help. But, man, that's amazing how much that's picking up. We'll just go back to a standing mic next week. That's that's really disappointing. That that's a, that piece should be better than that. Second, first Samuel? First Samuel. Where are we? First Samuel. 15? So Saul has a couple of moments where things go awry. And because off the top of my head, I don't have the chapter numbers memorized, um... Yeah, so it really goes left in chapter 13, where he's got to go fight. Saul's got to go fight, and he's worried about God not being with him. Now, this is the problem. Like, right there, this is why Saul's rejected. He's worried about God not being with him, and so he acts against what God says through, at this point, the prophet Samuel. Samuel shows up, it's like you did different than what God said. And Saul's like, well, that's because you weren't here, Samuel. It's your fault. So there you go. Two. First strike, I don't trust God. Second strike, it's not my fault. (laughs) Follow me? At this point, Samuel says, all right, this isn't going to go well for you. This is going to end up with your rejection. He's not rejected yet. He's just saying, this is what's going to get you rejected right now. And then when you have 15, right, that that you point us to, um, this is where he does it again. He has commandments to particularly like Joshua, right? Cleanse a certain area, remove the great evil entirely to the ground. And he doesn't do it. He keeps some for himself. And when confronted about it, let's see if I can find that real quick. Um, 
Yeah, so, so uh, verse 13, Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of Jesus, right? I have performed the commandment of Jesus. I won. God was with me. Totally surprised me. Look at all this stuff that we didn't even know was going to be there. Yeah, no, we got it. It's great. It's great. Samuel says, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? Like, you did not do what you were told to do. It's very simple, very clear. You did not do what you were told to do, right? Um, which I hear. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep, the oxen. <laughs> And out of this golden pot jumped a calf um, to sacrifice to God. Getting a cookie for you. Have you heard that, Bill Cosby? One? I mean, yeah, right, Saul, uh, for Jesus. Saul for Jesus, not for you. And the rest we've utterly destroyed. Uh, Samuel said to Saul, be quiet, and I will tell you what Jesus said to me last night. Speak on. Um, yeah, he, he basically gets c- condemned at that point. So what has he done? He has continued to not trust that what God has said is going to work. He has continued to not trust that God has made him the king, that through what God tells him to do, his house will be established forever, that there'll come all these great things from him. Um, also, uh, amazingly, he, he doesn't know, it would seem, but it, it, this fits with a lot of the warnings about kings as well that were given by Samuel uh, to kind of show forth why a human king is a bad idea. Like a pure human king for fallen humans. I should say it this way. A fallen human king is a bad idea. If you're going to have a king and really expect it to work out, you need a not fallen human king, right? David works out not because he's not fallen, but because as his heart is crushed as a Christian, he at least stays out of the way. But again, Saul keeps wanting to blame everybody but Saul until finally he gets rejected. And then it's not like, look, he had the rest of his life left. And what does he do? He mopes, he fears, he refuses to like go about in dust and ashes in repentance. Look, think of, think of like... um. Uh, I'm going to lose his name. Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, Manasseh. One of the worst kings in the history of ever. He had a kingdom that was glorious given to him, and he made it very powerful, but he also ruined the people. He ruined their faith. There are many people that he drove from church, basically, and drove into idolatry. Manasseh might be with us. It, it, It doesn't get real clear, but it does say that he humbles himself at the end, and he goes about in repentance the rest of his life. It doesn't say much more than that. Saul doesn't do that. Saul gets himself killed in a fight after consulting a witch, at which he is, again, condemned for refusing to just take what God gave him. Look, the faithful thing to do if you're Saul is this. Samuel says, The kingdom will be ripped from you and given to another. Amen. Blessed be Jesus Christ. May he have mercy on my soul and may I serve as a doorkeeper in his house all the days of my life. Amen. Did Saul say that? No, he doesn't say that, right? He blames. He blames. Verse 20, But I have obeyed the voice of Jesus and gone on the mission on which Jesus sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have destroyed the Amalekites. The people took the plunder. (laughs) Who's the king? The people took the plunder. That's why. You see it? David has one very similar connection moment, although I think his life has many of these, but there's one that's just so obvious, and this is where he has gone so far to hide his adultery is to have a man, innocent, killed in war by the hand of a bloody man who he himself will have murdered later because of what a bloody man he is. <sighs> you are that man, says Nathan. What's David do? I'm that man. Have mercy on me, Jesus. Boom. Stark difference, don't you think? Repentance, repentance, repentance. That's the difference. Saul is there as Judas of the Old Testament. And, and is he also among the prophets? I mean, he prophesies after this, but does, <laughs> and he goes on trying to kill David right afterwards, right? He, he never knows what he has. He's the mer- man who looks in the mirror and forgets what he looks like. He has, he has the sword of God in his hand. He doesn't believe it. And he stands forever as, as an example of that. Remember how good looking he was too. Remember how this man looked like a king. This man had everything you want in a man. 
why he didn't trust Jesus. He just didn't. And that's it. That's it. You know, is it his fault? Yeah, actually. Because was, he was even given to trust Jesus. And then he, he just didn't. Now, what about you? How, how do I not be Saul? I'm telling you, that's, that's the question that plagues me. It does. It does. How do I know I'm not Saul? How do I know I'm not the guy that's tricked myself into believing? But this is... <laughs> you, know now, you now know the difference between Saul and David. I just told you. So that's how you know you're not Saul. Okay? You have the Psalter right in front of you, and you're going to open it up, and you're going to pray it today. And that's how you know you're not Saul. That's not because of what you did. The, the Holy Spirit made you do that. And the Holy Spirit tried to make Saul do that, and Saul didn't do it. Right? So, so like, it's not that you did it and that made it happen, right? The Spirit's here with you, and so as you freely receive the Word of God, just know that's what David does. Yeah? And that the warning of Saul is not here to make you go, oh, I'm Saul. It is making you here to go, I don't want to be Saul. Lord, help me not be Saul. Teach me to pray the Psalms. Oh, I'm praying the Psalms. Thank you, Jesus. Right? Boom. Right? And, and yeah. yeah, devotion, repentance, joy, all that. It's good stuff. Good question. Saul has always fascinated me. Is Saul also among the prophets? Oh, but this line's so great. I forgot about this one. This one got me so hard because I always am struggling with Saul. I have, a, I have a lot of trouble like wondering like how do I not be him, right? So I, I feel your pain here. But what I, I love, I love chapter 16, verse 1. Okay, so all this has happened. Samuel said this stuff to Saul. And, and what does Samuel do? Who was the one who thought Saul was going to be a king because he said, this guy looks great? It was Samuel. So what does Samuel do? He goes about moping and upset because God has rejected Saul. And so God says to him in verse 16, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing as I have rejected him from reigning over, reigning over Israel? Fill your own with oil. Go, I'm sending you, you know, to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And he goes to anoint David. But that line, how long will you mourn for Saul? Like, so this is your answer this morning, right? Once you're like, you know, I know the difference between David and Saul and like, well, how do I know I'm not Saul? God's like, why are you mourning for Saul? He was there to show you something. You've seen it. Move on. Saul's very sad. Saul is very sad. He's not there for you to dwell on him. You're supposed to see, don't dwell on Saul, dwell on David because David is who God has chosen you to be and anointed you that by baptizing you into Christ. And that's his promise. And the only way it's not true is if you don't believe it. Faith alone. Look at that. I'm a Lutheran after all. What's up? Let's go to the next one. Yeehaw, yeehaw. <clears throat> it says, and I have a frog in my throat. It's much louder when you have it in front of your face. Maybe that's part of what's going on. Is where it's got to get around to the front of you. Okay. Because it sounds much better, even. All right. Oh yeah. So. Oh, it's really loud. Okay, too loud. Turning it down. Yeah, I don't have. There you go. Okay. That sounds great. I don't have my headphones on, so I can't sounds tell how good. loud you are. <clears throat> I think we're about even. You might be louder still. Dear Pastor Fisk, do you have any good verses for an engaged woman as to what my role is right now? I have come up short as there seem to be single people and married people in the Bible, but the world and even my very biblical family keeps talking about the transition and how my fiance and I should be getting closer during this time. Even when the Bible speaks of betrothed, it seems to only speak about interacting in inappropriate ways during the betrothal, and Paul in 1 Corinthians lumps them with single people. Thus, they are not married and should have should behave as such. My fiancé and I are currently wrestling with the fact that even when we try really hard to only think of each other as a brother or sister in Christ, we still have emotions, etc., which are wired into us for married people. Our emotions 
that build a marriage relationship necessarily wrong to feel outside of marriage. We both have talked about this at length and our consciences are bound that anything which God built for marriage is inappropriate outside of it. This includes more than the physical relationship and includes emotions. And we continue to the second page. It's a long one, but this is important. So. We made the mistake of setting our engagement period long enough for family members to make it to the wedding. To just get married right now would ruin his and my reputations, and he's a new pastor, so that is off the table. The Bible talks about keeping marriage and singleness chase, which includes our thoughts. Our thoughts are being twisted by our biology to desire emotional and physical relationship that is unlawful for us now. Our family members think we are crazy, at least those we've talked to about it, or talked about it too. No, whatever. <laughs> and say that we actually need to have these emotions so that when we get to marriage, we are actually ready for it. Please help. Thank you again for your seemingly tireless work. God's blessings and peace to you and yours. I like it's tireless. It's tired work. <laughs> In my experience, I can't stop it. And I think there's a question about that later, too. I mean, I'm driven, but um, but it's not tireless. I'm definitely tired. Uh, it's a really good question. It's a really important question. And I want to set a category for it first, like a category shift. I definitely want Meredith to talk on this one because um, she's going to have good insight for you on this, I think. Um, but I want to... I want everybody who's under 40 or 50 and like going to possibly engage in dating or courting or learning to meet people of the opposite sex to get married to them in any way, shape or form. I want you to, for a little bit, take it out of the category of sin. Just, just forget sin for a little bit. Okay. You're a Christian. Jesus died for you. Stop worrying about sin for a moment and think about wisdom and folly instead. Stop trying to live without sin until Jesus comes back and try to live wisely rather than foolishly until Jesus comes back. Now, that doesn't mean, like, like foolishly means you're going to try not to sin, right? But most of what the Proverbs are going to tell you that looks like is something you can deal with because you can see what it looks like. What you're trying to deal with is something you can't see, you can't touch, you can't change, you, you only feel it. And so... What you're finding is that you are battling your hearts and your hearts are causing you to wonder or to try to do things and you don't know whether it's foolish or wise. And you have people talking to you and you don't know whether what they're saying is foolish or wise. And I'm telling you, putting it in the category of foolish and wise will be the first step to helping. Stop trying to not sin. Stop trying to not sin. Your husband's a pastor. Stop trying to not sin. If by it you mean not have a bad thought ever. Because you're just going to hurt yourself. And everybody else, you're going to fight an internal battle you can't win that'll make you cranky, rude, and irritable to everybody else because you, you have no forgiveness. You follow? I mean, you do, but while you're trying, you don't act like it. So folly is a much calmer way to look at this. So the real question is, what's the wise thing to do when you have a year-long engagement? And you're both in your young bodies. And your young bodies are made to copulate. Like God created your bodies 
to like polar magnetic forces be drawn to each other in such a cosmic thing. All the heavens are spinning far out in the, in the extensions of the universe to bring like these two forces, these two bodies together. And then out of this will become new creation. Pro-creation. Like this, nowhere else in creation is this really going on. Not, not the way it is with men and women and our children and the sons of man that are in Christ and are part of the son of man now when they're baptized into him. Um, uh, I got distracted by Jesus. Bodies are made to copulate. Thank you, love. Um, and so there's something very good about what you're feeling for each other. And because you are planning to be married, it's even better. Because you are desiring to be married to each other, your attraction for each other is healthy. What you do with it can be foolish or wise. Huh? Is it sinful? Yes. You're sinful. You're going to have... Let's, I, I'm a guy, so I'm going to talk for guy here, okay? I don't know how girls do this because I'm not a girl. But but as a guy, what I know is that, so like, there's like, I see my wife and she's beautiful. She's beautiful, period. Anybody in the world can look at my wife and think she's beautiful and it's probably not a sin. Or it's not a sin, okay? But then, like, I go very quickly past she's beautiful too. I would like to get close. And as a guy, that goes very quickly past I'd like some comfort to, hi honey, let's have some romance. Huh? Um, that is healthy in the marriage. Both ways, I think. That means that as you're preparing to get married, if you don't have any of that, like, you're going to have a very cold marriage. Now, that's okay. Maybe you would like to have cold marriage. Very simple. Everything's in order, you know. <laughs> uh, very few times, but but let's make them lucrative and we'll have kids, you know, once a month or whatever. Um, I got try once a month, but, but keep going forever. If that's what your bodies are like, yeah, this is us. That's okay too, right? What I want you to see though is that if you're going to move toward a Christian marriage, then you're going to run into your fleshly passions going toward the Christian marriage, and you can't say that I'm going to stop them. Instead, you want to be wise with them and gear them toward a wonderful explosion on that one night, that first night, or the second, actually. I re- really recommend you just go to sleep the first night and have a nice talk, and then the next day, next morning, go out for breakfast and come back. And If it's really first time and you've never done it before, morning with some nice breakfast beforehand and like recoup from the night, I mean... At the night of the marriage, you're just so tired. You're just so tired. Now, guys, guys are going to be like, <laughs> they're the worst ones on this. They're not going to want this advice. Guys, I really mean it. I really mean it if you can. Um, but uh, gear everything about your engagement toward the question, what's the wisest way to help what we feel about each other lead toward a day when we get to express it publicly? Um, and then, you know, privately doesn't mean you go and you do more, right? It just means, again, you, you, as you have these conversations with each other and with those who are around you, you say, well, we're gearing toward this moment. Help us get there. And this is why. Here, here we're going toward this moment. Um, and that we see that is wise to strive to, like, limit ourselves until then. So um, there's a video you can find called Not Until I Say I Do. Uh, if you Google that, it should show up. It's me. Um, and there's a lot in there about physical relationship prior to marriage. Um, The most important idea, I think, the one that sticks with me the most, is to realize that physical touch is like emotional glue. Emotion glue. And so, it's not that it's like sinful to touch the hand of a girl 
that you have interest in. And so now you've touched her hand and oh, hell is here. Right? It's more that God created that touch to build unities that are meant to never break. And in as catastrophic and up and down a place as we have in this age and, and the breaking up constancy of the dating attempts and the way people go about marriage these days, I would say there's a lot of foolishness being applied with regard to how fast you're willing to tie your heart and soul emotionally to another person, which even holding hands for a while will do. So it's not so much about like, oh no, I did it wrong going to hell. Like you're not going to hell. You're a Christian. So stop being an idiot is really the the thing, right? You're a Christian. So act with prudence. You know what's coming. So disdain and devalue what is here that is in fact profane. And then remember again what God created, that your desire for each other is good. It's going to be part of what you are bound to and through throughout your lives. I, I, I mean, this is YouTube. I know there's you know, all sorts of people watching. It's not made for kids. But I think, I think my wife can affirm this for me. I don't know if she's willing to uh, publicly because it's a, bit, it's a bit embarrassing. But I, I would say that if it were not for our physical relationship, we wouldn't have made it. That there have been seasons in our life where the physical relationship is, is indeed been the glue. Yeah. Absolutely. It's kind of like a time to reconnect. I mm-hmm. mean, in a very obvious way, but yeah, yeah, you just... you. It completes all of the verbal and emotional con- con- conversations that we have as a married couple, which are not friendships, just. And they're not brother and sister, just. And that's where trying to see it as just brother and sister is, is flawed, because you're not just brother and sister in the life of the world to come. I'm not even sure you're going to be just brother and sister. You know, you will have had a shared history of this life. You'll, you will have a shared people. Your offspring are a shared offspring, you know? So even if there's no copulation in paradise, like there still is family. (laughs) Right. But right now as engaged people, yeah, yeah, you know, they are a little bit more brother and sister. They are brother and sister preparing to not be. And that means they're knowing that they're not going to be. And again, it's don't try to stop the natural emotion from arising. When it arises, don't let it get out until you know what it is and whether or not it's in alignment with what Scripture says you should allow to get out of your body, right? But, but don't be so surprised you find weeds growing in your heart. And then remember that they're not always weeds. Sometimes it's only a weed because of where you are. And so again, if I'm going to get married to my wife again, I can't imagine, you know, but I think I'm going to look on her with hunger and not really worry too much about the look. She's gorgeous. I want to be with her and I'm going to marry her. I'm going to look on her with hunger. Now, what do I say? What do I do? And and when I look on with hunger, do I leer? Do I imagine things that I shouldn't do? Or I just think, oh my gosh, I can't wait to marry this woman. No, I can't wait to be, she's so beautiful. Can't wait to to hold her close, to kiss her close. Like, that's okay. Don't do it. I mean, are you with me on this? I mean, I don't want to tell people that it's okay to harbor evil thoughts. That's not what I'm trying to say. But I think that there's a point at which your natural thoughts, um, they just have to be accepted and set aside in discipline rather than attempted to be removed in some sort of permanent way. Right. It it reminds me of how we speak to our kids about the hormonal changes that they go through um, in their preteen and teen years. No. Can you put it on you since you're talking so nicely? Okay. I want people that, well, you're, you're going to teach and you're right. You know more about this than I do. Okay. 
Um, yeah, so I, it just reminds me of how we speak to our kids about um, growing from a child to an adult. And when they encounter those different crazy adventures that they get to go through yeah, yeah. Um, hormonally and physically, we um, lay down some good guidelines for them for how to how to engage that change. Mm -hmm. But then we also praise God for it mm -hmm. because it means their body's working right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so this is a moment for the fiance couple to praise God. You know, everything is moving in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, in, do, do you have anything to say about how, um, cause I don't think I spoke to it directly or well, um, the family concerns, did you pick up on what that was about? Like, is the family just the family's? I think maybe to some extent, saying what I'm saying was like it's okay to be attracted to each other. Like, don't oh, don't try. I have just I had you totally covered up. <laughs> now your face is there. Okay, that's cool. So it's just me. <laughs> okay, yeah. It says that their family members think that they're crazy, and <laughs> I don't know what they think they're crazy. For, maybe for resisting these emotions? Yeah, I think so. Which, I, the, the trick is, I can't tell whether your parents are, like, wrong or right. Because I'm telling you, like, don't resist the emotion. You're not going to stop it. Acknowledge it. Recognize that it's compelling you to do something would be foolish. Tell it no and praise God for the fact that soon you're going to be married. But maybe they're like... They're telling you that waiting to have sex until you're married is foolish because you need to take a test drive and all that nonsense that's been floating around there forever. And at that point, if they think you're crazy, then that's a badge of honor. When a fool calls you a fool, it doesn't mean you're a fool. Huh? You follow? Yeah? What do you think, hon? Love? Um, well, I mean, we had some pretty specific advice given to us. Instead of getting married, we were told to move in together. Yeah. So... That was fun. Yeah. I mean, we've we've been there. We've been told we're crazy. Yeah. I mean, you're watching a show <laughs> called The Mad Christian. Like, the idea here is that we are crazy um, because the world's insane. And we're sane. And so they look at us and they see us as insane. You know, insane sees sane as insane. And evil sees good as bad, right? Uh, and that's the topsy-turvy place we live in. The Lord and his word can certainly inspire human civilizations, but we're in one right now where it doesn't want that. Well, what we want instead is destruction. Um, ooh, buzzy, buzzy. That's a strange sound. I wonder if that's your mic. I bet you it is. That's okay. You go ahead and talk, though. Um, that's what you want to do. Uh, well, I was going to oh, comment on how... Now I'm super distracted by you itching. My foot is cramping. Oh. Uh. Um, how we... Oh. So, scientifically, when you have the act of intercourse and an orgasm is achieved... The connection mm. between... So this is why pornography is so dangerous. Yes, amen. Uh, whatever you see, mm -hmm. the, the, the being that you see at the moment or shortly thereafter, I think there's a, a time frame like mm -hmm. three minutes after an orgasm, you form a very intimate bond with. Mm -hmm. And so as a way of re connecting after an argument or right. even in the midst of an argument. Um, if it's like a week long 
disagreement, right. which can happen. Right. Um, that is a, a physical way mm-hmm. to Stay get united. those hormones and those yeah. pheromones in the right place, I guess. Use be. the emotion glue to your advantage. Yeah. And and this is where then so so holding hands I'm I'm telling you holding hands is emotion glue but it's not the same level of emotion glue it's like your Elmer's emotion glue right sex is your super glue it's your super glue it rips the soul apart if you break it apart so um, see that there is a spectrum here that we're talking about but once you start gluing yourselves together any attempt to pull it apart is going to leave scabs or scars or scratches or whatever it is and then the problem and this is Mostly a male problem historically, although I don't know today things have changed so much and pornography has affected the culture just so much. But like the guy's like, all I want to do is hold her hand. That's all I want. Dear Jesus, all I want to do is hold her hand. Oh, I'm holding her hand. All I want to do is put my arm around her. Oh, all I want to do is hug her. All I want to do is kiss her. All I want to do is get inside of the clothing. And it just keeps going. It's just, it's just guys, if you haven't been there, trust me, guys, if you have been there, you know. You know. So like affirm me, please, because it just keeps going. And it's because we're hungry, lustful dogs in the flesh. Again, the Christian saved by grace knows this. Like, man, when I, when I see my flesh, I was like, geez, dog, shut, you know, go down. Yeah. But you can do that because you know that the new man is not the old man. And the new man is the one there to put the old man down. So in this, see the entire thing as one more chance to discipline yourselves with the grace of Jesus for each other and for the people that are calling you crazy. And, uh, with the the wisdom of Jesus, uh, which tells you to walk carefully and to see the jeopardy, but to never walk in fear of the jeopardy. Instead, walk in confidence that what God has surely said cannot be broken. And to be sure, chastity unto marriage is beautiful, right? Uh, the beauty's in the waiting, I believe, is the poem I wrote for you a long, long time ago. Yeah. yeah. The beauty's in the waiting. And this time will not be um, unused by God Correct. as he strengthens them both and Correct. forces them to rely upon each other as they're stretched. And maybe maybe this will help challenged. a little bit too. So, so Because you have the desire for copulation, which is very healthy and yet not healthy when acted on outside of certain regulations. And certainly um, men tend to want it way more. And so internally there is a fight to like, retrain your head to see women not as objects but as people and especially if you've been into porn that that's a, an ongoing thing that's one side of this battle remember you're getting married for your kids so stop thinking this is about you enjoying sex that night and realize instead this is about you making you and about god making you hungry to have kids even though it doesn't look like that or feel like but that's actually what it is that's how it was supposed to work is you're hungry to have kids and so see this waiting period all being about that. We're not just having sex because we're attracted to each other. We are attracted to each other. So since we know what that does, we're going to make sure everything's in order. So when we do it, we can have kids. Because that's what it's about. So again, that's that's wisdom, right? That, that's seeing just how nature functions and walking in line with it rather than trying to do things that we just think are good ideas because we decided they were good ideas because we're man and we can do whatever we want. Yeah. Go to, a, go to a swim park and have thunderstorm. Right. That's right. That's what we do. <laughs> it's endless. We're, I mean, that was like, to me, that's funny because it's the culmination of like two weeks in our family of, of other stories 
um, just showing how we tend to push on something we think we want and it, and it ends up, you know, kind of coming back on us some way. And um, we all do this with all sorts of stuff. Uh, goodness gracious. Okay, so the next question is, um, Shepard Fisk, what is the difference between separation and divorce? Mm. Is there a difference in moral significance and severity? Prayers for you and yours. What time we got? We got 10 o'clock. Let's take our three-minute break. We're coming right back with this question on divorce, separation, and whatnot. You found the Mad Christian Saturday Morning Chill. You can support it at patreon.com slash revfisk. You can follow on Podbean by looking for A Brief History of Power, the podcast there that also gets all this stuff put into it. More of that coming your way in just a few moments. We'll be right back. You found the Mad Christian Saturday Morning Chill with Jonathan and Meredith. Ed, he is risen. You are paid for. He's not going to be long now. And oh, I did it backwards again. He is risen. You are paid for. You are immortal now. He's not going to be long anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're still working with sound here a little bit, trying to figure out what the right balance is on everything. We turned me down because, I don't know. The problem, again, is we're running through like two or three different places that are functioning as mix- mixers, including the Ecamm program. And that one has um, seems to not have as much control over it. So, yeah. Yeah, right, right, right. So, anyhow. We're going to go ahead and move on. we got a question on divorce and separation and or things like that once we get the sound back up. and One day. One day. Maybe. <laughs> okay. Do you want to hear the question again? I uh, There's more to it, isn't there? Nope. That's it. It's oh, then, really yeah. I, short I definitely want to hear it again. Um, what is the difference between separation and divorce? Is there a difference in moral significance and severity? Are you sure there's not more? Okay. 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 Yeah. So let's do these together and you turn your mic off. Oh, does it need a new battery? There we go. Maybe it's because I was sitting on the... I don't know. No. I don't even know. No, 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 no. <laughs> go ahead and read that next question too. Okay. It's a long one. So buckle your yeah, right. seatbelt. But it's, it's connected to the same idea of divorce, remarriage, separation, all that. Okay, greetings, Pastor. Hoping you can help me on the question of divorce that I continue to struggle with. My first marriage lasted two years, ending in divorce when I was around 30. We had no children. At the time, I considered myself Christian, being baptized and having been confirmed. But looking back now, realize I am ashamed to say that at best, I was a nominal Christian. I did not attend or even have a church and had very little understanding of scripture or doctrine, despite my confirmation. I was essentially living as a heathen and had no understanding of the significance, importance, or responsibility of marriage. My ex-wife was not a Christian, but before we were married, we had many discussions on my desire to find a church and attend together. She gave me every reason to believe she was in agreement, but after we, after we were married, it became clear she had no intention of following up on that. Now, to my shame, this was just one of many problems we had, so it would be disingenuous for me to imply that this was the primary reason for our eventual divorce. I understand now that having a spouse who is not a believer is not grounds for divorce. She remarried shortly after. Fast forward 12 years and I remarried. My second wife grew up LCMS and by the grace of God, I was brought back into the church. During the past decade, I, 
as I studied scripture, I became more and more fearful of my salvation as it could be easily argued that I continue to wake up every day in perpetual sin with my second wife, my first wife still living. From reading the old Lutheran church fathers, there seems to be only two legitimate grounds for divorce, malicious desertion and adultery. My not, I'm not confident I could sincerely claim either. In the book, The Doctrine of the Evangelical Lutheran Church, under the chapter of sin, um, it talks of a class of sin called involuntary sins or sins of ignorance and describes them as such. Sins of ignorance which overtake the unwilling regenerate in consequence of the darkness of the mind, which has not been yet entirely removed by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Is it possible for my sin, uh, no, is it possible my sin would fall under this classification? I'm not looking for an answer to soothe my conscience as welcome as that would be. I honestly would like to know if I'm in spiritual danger, and if so, what can be done? Thank you for all you do. All right, lots of good stuff in there to deal with. Um, going back to the first question, divorce and separation, um, and we might get a little tangent on this from that last one, but again, they're tied to each other. Uh, divorce, historically, for Christians, is something that comes out of Mosaic law. It is the right of a Jew to put away his wife. Um, I don't know everything about why that is. Uh, I haven't looked deeply into that. Um, I'm sure there are resources on that. Uh, but from there, then, uh, the idea of monogamous marriage and or when you're married, you're married until you die uh, is very firmly established as a biblical idea that Jesus comes along and he doesn't make it easier when he's asked to do so. The Pharisees on a couple occasions uh, try to see where he thinks on these things and imply that, you know, um, uh, well, since Moses gave divorce, divorce is a good thing. And Jesus is pretty clear. No, 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 no. Uh, divorce is is actually like, like by the definition, God's saying they're so ignorant, they can't understand. I'll just let them do this one, right? So that's the Mosaic approach to divorce. And if you look at their laws, they're pretty rough, right? But that's the sin of ignorance, if there is one, is the Mosaic laws on divorce. Jesus comes along and says, from the beginning, it was not so. So the idea is that man and woman are not made to separate once they've copulated. I mean, you're going to go your way in the garden or whatever, but like you're made to be together for the family forever. Um, and that is, at least in my mind, very different than anything such as separation, um, depending on what you mean by separation, because separation can just be preceding divorce. Right? It's just it's like, well, we've, we need t- we need time out. Right. Our relationship needs time out. Let's separate for two months and then see if we can enjoy each other after that. You come back, you have romance, and it all gets angry again, right? Or something like that. These patterns are not healthy when those happen. So that kind of separation is not is not um, uh, really valuable, I don't think. Uh, but there is separation that is valuable, and that's when the situation is so dangerous that it's so dangerous that you need to leave the house. And at that point, um, separation is very much a valid option for a Christian. Like, you... Turn the other cheek does not mean get pummeled. Uh, turn the other cheek means know where you are in the relationship and don't assume more of yourself than you deserve. But if someone is trying to harm you physically, you're, it's okay to run away. Like That's okay. You can leave. Now, 
Christian separation would always be done with the intention to not divorce. So if there's such a thing as Christian separation, it means we're not going to divorce. There is no divorce. Divorce doesn't exist. We are seeking help because alone we can't handle this. We're not taking a time out. We're bringing in a referee. Uh, uh, that can be very helpful, I think. Um, uh, it depends, again, uh, on, on what the agenda is. Um, but, you know, having a temporary separation during which you're just going to talk to a lawyer to explore some options, like, you're divorced. <laughs> you're already done. Uh, so th- that is that is not really different. And so what do you mean by the language? And the language, again, of divorce comes out of the Bible in an effort to declare to us that there is no breaking what God has joined together. And even if you do so, the ramifications are going to haunt you the rest of your life, which is what you are finding happen right now. So from there... What I really need you to know is that there's no double jeopardy for your sin, okay? So, like, here you are, sir. You have lived a life where you have confessed you were you were acting as an ignorant Christian, if Christian. It's hard to say, and we'll let Jesus be the judge of it. In either case, you've been brought to repentance with regard to a whole host of things with regard to your faith, right? I mean, otherwise you wouldn't say things like, I was living as a nominal Christian. Like, you wouldn't say that unless you had repented. So you have, on some level, repented and realized that the life you were living before, what, today, was really not one as a Christian you feel comfortable doing anymore. So what I want you to know is there's no double jeopardy now. Like, you don't have to go back to, like, when you were seven and find out if you did something wrong that's still lasting, like, undo it or something. Like, that that's not quite how this works. Salvation's today. For everything. Today. There's nothing you did 30 years ago that stands between you and that. It doesn't matter if you're still living with its ramifications. If you were such a radical idiot, then in a fit of rage you cut off your hand when you were 12. And you're 35. Like, are you going to hell no matter what because you cut off your hand now and you can't do anything about it? No! It's, it's madness. It's madness, your worry here. And, and I want to demonstrate this by pointing out that you're looking for the sin of ignorance. While that's an important doctrine, I want to talk about it. Like, you're looking for a loophole that's not the wounds of Jesus. Stop. Stop. You're free, man. You're free. You're forgiven. You're like, but I have a divorce and I'm waking up with a, a woman who's my second wife. I'm making her adulterer. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about not trying to do those things, not teaching those things. Now that you're here today, today, you're married to who? The other woman? No, you're married to your wife. You're married to your wife. Stay married to your wife. Love your wife. She's your wife. Paul says when you're abandoned, you are not bound. I, even if you were wrong, even if you were, you were, when you were like part of the divorce and you thought because of Christianity, you had a right to divorce or something like that, which is really not the way it usually goes. Even then, you, uh, I lost it. <laughs> All right. That's embarrassing. Hmm. I was before that. It was before that. The feel if you're right was a, was a, a tangent. Um, uh, I'm never going to get it back. Uh, waking up every day. I'm going to come back to today is the day of salvation. Okay. You wake up every day and you have a sin that happened a long time ago that has shameful ramifications that are here today. The answer is not to go back and justify it with works or to go forward and justify it with works. The answer is to know that it's forgiven in Jesus Christ. Now, today, where are you? You're in bed with a different wife. She's your wife. You're married to her in God's sight. That was it. So even though you were acting like a foolish, nominal Christian when you enacted the divorce on behalf of your Christianity, 
<laughs> I did it again. I mean, that's, the, that's the lead-in. I lost it again. Um, uh, oh, man. That's amazing. Twice with the same thought. You were abandoned. That's it. Wonder why I can't remember that thought. Think about it. You were abandoned. When you divorced her and she divorced you, as a non-Christian, she abandoned you. You, as a Christian, nominal, remained single for 12 years, you tell us. She did not. Okay. She did not give you the opportunity to come back together. You waited 12 years. She got married again. Okay. You are now, if you want to go legal loopholes, you're abandoned by her. According to all those rules that Paul sits down, if we're going to go and get legalistic about all the rules to make sure we do it just right and avoid sin, which you can't do, just you're abandoned. And then you got married to someone who is a Christian. There is nothing you can do now trying to rectify this that will help your current marriage. Every time you dwell on it, every time you think it matters, every time you don't believe that the blood of Jesus covered you and today is new. When you got married again, it was new. Your baptism stands and makes you whole. Every time you don't do that, what it does is it takes away from the present marriage. And that would be the shame of the guilt of the first one, wouldn't it then? This is actually the curse in real time happening. It's not like God has to stand up here and like, like do something. What's happening is your psyche is carrying the burden of knowing what happened. But what the gospel says, what Jesus says, is that you don't have to carry that burden. It's not because you were ignorant in some sort of like special loophole way. It's because he died for that reason. That's why he bled. That's what he did. Now, you're, you're telling me you're not worried about that and you just want to know if you're walking wisely. I'm telling you looking for loopholes is not walking wisely. You walk wisely by knowing what Paul says about the betrothed or the slave. A couple different places. Are you, are you betrothed? Well, then don't break it off because you think the world's going to end. Get married anyway. Are you a slave? Can you get your freedom? Get your freedom. Can you not get your freedom? Be a Christian slave. Right? So where are you right now? There's no double jeopardy. You repented. You're going to repent again tomorrow. You're going to repent again the next day. Try not to do more things that you feel you have to repent of on such a level that you can't repent because it's 30 years ago and you're still plagued by it, right? Like live with the knowledge and the wisdom you've gained from this experience of how detrimental lack of faith in God's word can be and then take that as the gift that it is. That now you have a wisdom other people don't have. Now you can see why God says what he says and you can apply that to your present marriage and the life and relationships around you not to tit for tat but instead to try to give that charity which would have saved the first marriage, right? And on which the second marriage God be praised is built, right? So again, circling around your psyche and conscience trying to fill the hole of shame with something other than the wounds of Jesus is not going to work. The sin of ignorance and the high-handed sin are meant to be for adjudication. Okay, This is why searching the scriptures for legal codes for your conscience isn't going to help you. These legal codes are for adjudicating a public court. So in a public court, these rules come to apply when you are like legally suing each other in Hebraic Israel. Um, and in this regard, then, you know, the sin of ignorance as a category is largely one up today applied for, say, a, a pastor or a, a leader. You think of it maybe these terms. Um, it's the weaker brother argument. OK, so the weaker brother is the sinner of ignorance. Yeah? Um, and that is more about how you handle any given relationship where you realize this person I'm talking to is doing something that technically is shameful and or foolish and or sinful, but right now I can't stop them with my words. But thank God, 
It's not hurting them. They're just ignorant. Thank God their faith is not being destroyed by this. Now, you want to talk about a sin of ignorance right now? I'll give you one, okay? I'll give you one. If these vaccines end up killing half the population of the planet, I'd call that a sin of ignorance. And it's nothing you need to really worry about. Worry about. Not in terms of salvation. Now, if you're concerned about you know, fertility and your life here and your children, well, that's where a sin of ignorance really still is foolish. It's not okay, this sin of ignorance. It's, it's folly, but then it's there for you as a pastor or as a Christian to diagnose that person's living in folly. They're a fool. They commit sins of ignorance, but they're still believers, and I can still try to draw them closer by speaking words of wisdom to them as opposed to they are completely rejecting all of this. Whereas the high-handed sin is the opposite of the sin of ignorance. This is the, I know what you say, it's wrong, you're evil for saying it's good. Now, that's not the sin of ignorance, that's the high-handed sin, okay? We live in a country where there's a lot of that going on right now. Yeah, um, And you're not it. And so, uh, would you stop letting the zeitgeist tell you you have to worry about your past marriage and rejoice that, hallelujah, you're married now to someone who goes to church with you and is going to spend the rest of eternity with you? And maybe... Maybe build on that instead of worrying about how you can like fill in the cracks of what Jesus has already dealt with entirely. Uh, golly, my heart's like with you because you say you don't need comfort, but why are you searching so hard? Why are you searching so hard? Um, a man who divorces his wife and marries another makes her an adulteress. That's how Jesus says it. So um, as she marries another, right? is when she marries another. So there's this weird weird thing where everything about adultery in the language of Scripture is weighted toward the woman having more guilt than the man, which is really not feminist <laughs> at all. Um, and so I, I don't want to make too much of that here either because I don't think we can like make too much of it. But, but notice how don't take something Jesus says about a narrow Hebraic legal code to condemn people who are saying they're keeping it. Don't try to live in that world for your own conscience, right? Instead, live in the world in which Jesus Christ has alleviated this with his kingdom, initiated, activated, washing you. And now it's less about sin and grace because it's all about grace for your sin. And it's more about wisdom and foolishness because you want to walk wisely for your neighbor and not be a fool who causes your neighbor harm. It's just a better category for the whole question, I think. Um, I think my wife can definitely talk to this, though. I want to let her chime in here. Make sure you get the camera on you, too. Um, uh, my heart goes out to him in his situation. It's, it's rough because in our culture, especially as Christians, um, we don't have the ability to grieve with our brothers and sisters who divorce. Yeah, right, right. Um, we have to justify it usually. Yeah. And it's so allowing the heart to grieve and yeah, yeah. know that you can grieve in a community is so helpful and that we, we don't offer as easily or as well. Yeah. So I haven't talked about CPTSD for a while. One of the lessons I've learned through this process of my own psyche um, has been the value of grief and how searching for answers, staying active, t- 
tends to be avoiding the grief. And at the end of the day, the grief is just a really crappy emotion. And it's not going to be denied because you feel it. It's the mm-hmm. same thing with the lust, right? Like You felt it. You, you can't deny that it felt. It's not going to stop feeling. It's what, you know, see that there's a difference between your heart and your mouth and your hands, though. It's important. Um, but you feel that grief, in this case, you have to let it feel in the body. And then um, personally what I've found is that means that uh, I need to cry. But, you know, I just have to. And I, uh, CPTSD makes this happen more often than most people have to deal with. But, you know, if you're dealing with a severe situation like you are, and if you've never wept over it, um, I would suggest that, that Jesus wept for good reason. And that uh, tears, grief, and pain are very healthy things that most people don't have the freedom to pursue. Uh, but that, again, the Christian solidarity, the, the platform of Jesus, that he is under us, not over us. Um, I mean, he's over us, too, but you know what I mean? Like, we're standing on him. He's behind us, not in front of us. Um, that that is the power to begin to pick apart your own heart again, uh, piece at a time. And that will mean then unearthing the grief and learning to cry if you haven't. I mean, you already have, right? Um, but learning to cry, uh, it, it does something chemically in the head with the grief that's in the chest, pulls it through the eyes. Um, amazingly, I've been learning to smile in my tears recently. And it's not always, but oh, I like that. I like that. So grief. Grief takes time. We don't got time. Got to go get busy. Keep moving. Right. Well, and then also, I mean, if he's worrying about whether or not he sinned, it it is kind of interesting to me that his second wife, so his first wife that he divorced was a non-Christian, and then God blessed him with mm-hmm. a second wife who is a Christian. Right. right. And so that seems like quite a blessed answer yeah. from our Lord. Yeah. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Read Joseph. Go read Joseph. Uh, Judah is the one for whom the Christ comes, and he ends up faithful in the end. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, did you sin? Yeah. Uh, it's not the kind of thing that doesn't get forgiven by Jesus retroactively. <laughs> you know, you did this one thing so long ago, there's nothing you can do about it now, unless you let go. And I mean, the, the insanity of this is, okay, you want to fix this like a legalist? You know what you're going to do? You're going to divorce your current wife. You're going to go find your other current wife. You're going to try to get her to get divorced from her current husband so that you guys can get married so you can be righteous. This is the devil's plan. So don't listen to the devil's plan. That's a bad plan. Walk forward in grace. Walk forward in grace. What we got next here? Dear Pastor Fisk, if Christ has indeed strengthened you to be content in all things, then what motivates you to aspire towards excellence? From my perspective, the Holy Spirit moves powerfully within you as it appears you exhibit near relentless motivation to speak God's wisdom to this age via vocation, books, podcasts, pulpit, service, service, videos, etc., don't you need only be still as God will wage war on the behalf of his church? Please speak wisdom to the quietest within me and give me words to speak to the quietest in others. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, that's good, Ryan. Um, I mean, because some of what you said is true. Like, you can 
be still and know that God is God. Um, he never in his word says, don't do anything ever. <laughs> um, he simply says, trust me that what you do isn't the thing that finally matters, right? It doesn't say, um, have no plans and the Lord will bring you success. It says, commit your plans to the Lord and he will bring you success, right? So um, I, the quietest here uh, is frankly just unfaithful. I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but I don't think you're unfaithful. Um, I think what you're doing is you're seeing how a lot of the dogmatic argumentation of the last hundred years has painted us into a couple of corners where our philosophical ways of explaining things have created barriers to other philosophical ways of explaining things so that what we should have stand together is actually set at odds, like your question. How can you be content and pursue excellence? As if, again, um, this is really just about some sort of philosophical logical problem, and if we figure out the philosophy, we'll all be fine. Uh, It's more about faith. So contentment is knowing in any given moment that what God has given you is good enough. That doesn't mean God doesn't say, go over here and do this next. It doesn't mean God hasn't given you stewardship over the garden and stewardship over the family and time isn't going to stop and the kids are going to grow and the plants are going to grow. So you're going to have to go and get your hands dirty at some point because it's just there. But Contentment is not about not doing that or only doing it poorly. Contentment is simply an, a posture from where you begin that the result won't affect your relationship with your God and therefore your identity. Your result is not what makes you who you are. So a contented person is content before they try in that regard. Now, am I actually content? <laughs> I'm working on it. Yeah. Um, uh, There's also something very beautiful about wanting to live, about the zeal and drive that that is just what it means to be a human. And and this is from God, too. And so the pursuit of uh, exploration, uh, the pursuit of art, uh, the pursuit of craft, excellence, all these things, these are why God made man. He, he, He hid within creation an endless panoply of toys, uh, for man to perceive, play with, and craft into things that serve the good of all. That's excellence, right? Um, and so, you know, setting these two things up as if they're like polar opposites on a spectrum, um, I don't think that works. In fact, you should never do that with language. Let's see if I can do this live here. Uh, I have to do a lot of talk. So I'm going to write down here um, <clears throat> contentment. I'm going to write down here. Excellent. All right. So what you're doing is you're saying that there's an either or going on. Can you see it? All right. And a lot of English has been attempted to be understood as either or spectrums, cold, hot, with warm in the middle. Um, but so let's let's do that here like this. Um So we tend to think in English like this, right? You have like this spectrum of two things between, but then somewhere in the middle, there's a line. And that's like, you know, after lukewarm, it really is cold kind of thing, right? Um, But this is the way 
that I think real information works. So you don't have a spectrum, you have a triad or a semantic field. Um, and at the middle of that field is something very important. Uh, and I don't know what actually goes with this to make your current philosophical question make sense. But somewhere there's another idea that makes both contentment and excellence open up into a three-dimensional reality, a three-dimensional semantic field, a way of understanding your present that isn't just either or and somewhere in between. And I mean, I have, I can show you other ones I've been working on. I haven't thought about this one enough. It's really worth thinking about, um, but I don't know that I can do it while kind of hyperactively on the show. Uh, Maybe I can come back with that next week. Ryan Learman asks, is there an English word for productive contentment? That's interesting. So he said productive. So I'm going to throw that word up here just because sometimes that's how it works. So now you have an interesting thing, right? And so it would be productive. It would be production. What's the relationship between contentment, excellence, and production, right? Because excellence tends to be the enemy of production. You ever notice that, right? And contentment also can be the enemy of production. And yet together, they actually relate to production quite a bit. See how that adding of a word there opens up your entire way of thinking about this. Now, ideally, what you're really going to do when you do this is find biblical words with Bible verses connected to them that will help you form an understanding of what you're pushing on here. Um, So you would have like what? Be still and know that I am God. And you would have like pressing on toward the goal of the upward call for which Christ has called me heavenward, right? So you have those two things right next to each other. And you have production. Well, I'll tell you what to put in production. Let's look up 2 Corinthians 4. We got that one ready to go for you, Meredith, on the... This is coming up in, in our text for the uh, Barnabas this weekend. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, beginning at the 7th verse. No, we're not going to start at 7, though. Uh, that's where the reading starts this week. We're going to start, I think it's at verse 11. Oh, look at that. What's that? Make sure you go to Brave. Brave is the browser on the bottom. Did it show up? So we're wanting to look at verse 13. I mean, uh, we're going to read through it. It's so good. Um, start at verse 6. Uh, da, 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 da. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts. So notice here, God makes light and God is lighting your heart. See that? Your heart, which is dark, which is filled with lies. God's going to shine light into it. So we've been talking about it all morning. The light he's going to shine is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, such a beautiful verse. So God who made light is now giving a new light, which is the knowledge of Jesus in your heart. Okay. What's the knowledge of Jesus in the face of his, in the face of Jesus? I think that's what he says next. Verse seven. But we have this treasure, faith, in jars of clay, earthen vessels, mud men, <laughs> the Greek kind of implies. Um, why? Why do we have this amazing treasure of being the light of God as a new creation in these like dying bodies that don't glow, right? It's to show that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. It's so that we will remember that we are not going to ascend to God, but that God is always the one who gives to us, right? The, the original fall is still being fought against here. And so what do we experience? I love how Paul says this. Um, I'm going to give you his and then, or well, New King, King James and then my own. Um, and we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about the body, in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus. So um, I like I like this language here. Pressured, but not restricted. Overwhelmed, but not overthrown. Harassed, but not abandoned. Cast down, but not abolished. 
always, again, carrying the dying of Jesus in our bodies so the life of Jesus might also be in our bodies. The dying of Jesus is how our sinful condition and shame attack us. The life of Jesus is our knowledge that Jesus is risen from the dead, that we are paid for, that we're immortal now, and that we can't be separated from this reality. So we're carrying that around in us all the time. Our actual death, our actual sin, and the knowledge of Jesus as the antidote, in order that that knowledge of Jesus and as the antidote might be manifested in this creation. He explains the same idea again, verse 11, we who are alive are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. So if you're a Christian, you're alive, you know why you're here? To die slowly with pain and your sin. Why? For Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in your flesh. Now there, um, that language in our mortal flesh, please hear that less as what it said earlier about your body having the light of Jesus shine on it and hear it more as the mortification of your sin. So by the knowledge of the light of God, you may look upon your fleshly desires and say no. You may kill your fleshly desires. You may have self-control. Okay. So then death is at work in us, but life in you, Paul says of the apostles, and then us, verse 13. And since we have this, this is where, for your answer, Ryan, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, and therefore I spoke. I can try to look down here and see where that is. What is that? Verse 13 leads us to Psalm 116, verse 10. I believe and therefore I spoke. Is that right? Yeah. We also believe and therefore speak. Now, I'm going to stop right there, Ryan. You want a verse against your quietism? Right there. We also believe and therefore speak. We also, where did my, where did my triangle go? There we go. So, um, so you have contentment. Be still and know that I am God. You have uh, excellence. I press on toward the goal of the upward call. And you have production. Um, according to the spirit, I believe and therefore I spoke. Mm. I think I think the word in the middle is going to be something like this. Now, you're not going to find this in a dictionary anywhere, but it's what the Bible teaches. Witness. Witness. Yeah. So, um, thank you for saying that you, you perceive the Holy Spirit moving in me powerfully. That's, that's, I don't know how to take that. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I want to be like, yeah, you know, but then, you know, the Lutheran enemy is like, I better be ashamed of it and doubt myself. Otherwise, I might get a big head or something. You know, and then ruin it all. Right? And so, thank you. Um, it's probably good not to be wise in your own eyes. Uh, but I think there's also a level at which we want to be aware of the distinction between foolishness and, fall, or, and wisdom. And so, you don't have to be wise in your own eyes to know that the Word of God is wise and that that makes that other thing a fool, right? So, uh, thank you for saying that you hear that from me because that's a prayer of mine and a desire of mine. And um, I remember when I uh, was very young, I saw as a, like a, a placard on a Lutheran school wall, um, Kishkot. Do you remember Kishkot at Laverne? Yeah. Uh, he had a verse from Jeremiah uh, that it said, uh, the, the word of God is in my bones like a fire. And I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. And at that young age, I remember thinking, man, this is kind of what it feels like. And I still do. So, you know, for, for, for what it's worth... Um, I'm driven on this matter. And that's, I, I said this, I think a week ago. I mean, that, that's me. You don't need to be me. In fact, I don't think you want to be me. And in some ways, a lot of what I'm doing isn't, isn't good. Workaholism, perfectionism, you know, vainglory. I mean, I've been, I, I'm, I'm a man like everybody else here, right? So it's not like any day I pick up my hammer and I'm not wanting to like, build something have everyone worship me because of it. I mean, we, we all have this like desire for attention, right? Um, but 
the prayer of Christ in us as a people, the church, who we are, is both that the Holy Spirit would indeed fill us, that we would know we are filled because it is the word of God that fills and the word of God coming out of us. I believe and therefore I spoke that is the confession, that is is the witness, right? Um, he who confesses with it, who believes in his heart and confesses with his mouth. Now, the Baptists will go and they'll take that and they'll turn it into like your, your soteriology. So the way you're saved is that you have to come to belief in the heart and then confess with your mouth and now you know you're saved, right? And then that's their soteriology even though baptism now saves you is written in the Bible, whatever. Um, so we, we don't want to take this um, uh, and, and make it how you're saved. Uh, but believing and therefore speaking, having it in your heart and therefore having it come out of your mouth is the normal path of Christianity. I mean, you're Mary in the guarded, right? And Jesus is like, hey, Mary, go tell my brothers that I'm risen. And she's like, well, that sounds nice, but I'm going to be content because you're risen. So this isn't contentment then. This is disobedience, arrogance, and laziness, right? So quietism is disobedience, arrogance, and laziness. A lazy man says there's a line in the streets. 26... 3? 17? 13. 26, 13. So, um, I think this is the kind of question that, in one sense, you don't need to worry about. You worried about it. We've had our talk about it. Now, just let it go. Because the Holy Spirit is going to motivate you to speak. And if at the moment you're like, I don't feel motivated to speak, well then, read the Bible instead. (laughs) Because it, it won't be long before that Bible does not let you stay content with the evil. You will be content with God's answer to your prayers. You will be content with the result of your works. You will not be content with the devil running everything. You will not be content with the demons convincing everybody to worship them. You will not be content with the idolatry in your streets. You will not be content with the adultery around you. You will not be content with your children having like their livelihood stripped away from them by legalistic, tyrannical, faraway governments. You will not be content with false religions lifting up their name in the name of Jesus and saying that they really have Jesus and you don't. You will not be content with any of that because it's evil. You will be discontent with evil. But you will be content with your God and his answers to the evil. And that is not an either-or, that is a field you live in. Eh? I hope that helps. Be still and know that I am God means find the fire in your bones by reading the scriptures and then talk about it to somebody. <laughs> you know? Let it be. Let it be. Let it fly. All right. Jeremy says, Rev Fisk, my grandmother has... Whoops, hold on. Is it on here all the way? Yes. Has very late stage... Whoops. <laughs> Putting it, it sounds off very the serious. <laughs> I know it. It is very serious, and I'm sorry for laughing right now. Um, okay, my grandmother has very late stage dementia. To my knowledge, she has never been baptized and never been part of a church. My question is simply: Is it too late for her? I know baptism saves, and I know bap- we baptize infants without their understanding at the time. But my grandmother isn't getting more aware as time goes on. Her time for teaching and instruction have passed, and she would likely not be able to comprehend the words of institution delivered to her. Furthermore, while I never discussed eternity with her, I know religion, in quotes, has not some, was not something she was interested in. So if I were to be able to ask her if she wanted to be baptized, she would likely say no. She does not have much time left. 
Should I contact a lo local LCMS pastor in her area? I am fully aware and confess that it is ultimately Jesus who judges the living and the dead, and also aware that he calls upon all nations to be baptized. But I am also mindful of the holiness of baptism and wonder what forcible baptism, in quotes, means for all parties involved. It's a really fascinating question. And uh, I, I, I like it because, again, I don't think it's going to have uh, an easy answer that's either or on this. Uh, my first note that I wrote when I listened to this earlier today uh, was baptism is not a charm. But don't forget that baptism also is a charm. It's a charm that only works by creating faith. It only works for faith. It doesn't work against faith. And that's where you're in a situation that I don't even know how to answer this question. Because it's a situation that in some ways doesn't exist historically. Now, don't get me wrong, there's been dementia before, but the kind of level of extended life that we are able to maintain today, uh, wherein the number of people who reach infancy in their minds again before they die um, is people who could have died a lot sooner um, in normal history, but we found ways to extend life until your brain stops working because you ate too much of whatever or took too much of whatever or whatever it is that causes these. I have my theories, but um, so... Uh, there, it isn't like there's examples. There's just no examples of this. Uh, the closest is the baby, but this is not a baby. They're, they're like unto a baby. There's a major difference between a baby at the font and your grandma in a hospital or in a, in a nursing home. The baby at the font is under the authority of the parents cosmically. It's writ into nature. It is unavoidable. You can try to rip it apart and judgment day it will be revealed. You didn't do it. Your grandma is not under your authority. Not even a tiny bit. And so I don't know where you'd get off baptizing her or having her baptized against her will as an adult who with her will rejected Jesus until Jesus took her mind from her to preserve her into death. Now, all that said, I think you should call your local pastor and ask him to visit. Have a chat with her. Yeah? See if he'll visit a couple times. Keep talking to her. Because forget baptism. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Tell her that. Just say, Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose again. If she starts going, oh, oh, that's good. That's good. That's salvation. Just let that, that's enough. Get the pastor. Let the pastor deal with this. Don't look for a loophole. Don't look for codexes of man-made laws to try to find the right answer for now that's something other than your pastor's going to come and preach and he's trained for this moment. You're there to witness, and you were born again for this moment. But we do not have magic. We do not have things that work past the soul. We don't have something that I can put on people who aren't Christians, and they'll magically become Christians. We have a promise from God to give forward, and we very much have in Acts chapter 2 the promise that it's for our kids. I know the Baptists, there's no children in the Bible. Acts 2. Anyway. <laughs> it's for our kids it doesn't say go backwards in time and baptize all the people who died like the Mormons do it doesn't say again you know force baptism on people who've lost their minds in nursing homes because you'll save them without their knowledge of it that's treating it like it's magic and it's not magic it is a it is a sacred promise to be given to complete to stamp to seal 
the verbal promise, which should always be being given to the infant and the adult, both before and after baptism. So uh, the big problem most people have with baptism from a Lutheran point of view when you're not a Lutheran or not a, not a Catholic, when you're just a Baptist, uh, is you think we're like separating baptism and, and Jesus somehow, right? You think that you know baptism is this one thing and Jesus is this other thing. And all we think is that baptism is just Jesus' words, like, like with the water. Like he spoke and said, do it. So he gets to like authorize all of it. And when it hits you, it's not nothing. It can't be nothing. It's Jesus' words through time and space and history hitting you. How can it not be nothing? And once you realize he does all these other things with it and then promises that it buries you and raises you with him, like, what's the problem? The problem is you don't like the Bible. The problem is you like your will too much. The problem is you don't like grace very much. And I'm sorry, but most Baptists, that's actually true. Look at how you actually live. Don't get me wrong. Lutherans aren't doing much better these days. The whole thing's falling apart. But again, Seeing baptism as a charm is Lutherans. Why the Baptists think we're crazy and we're wrong when we do it that way. Baptists not seeing that baptism is God's, in fact, promissory sacramental more than charming of you forever. So you might believe it's true. Well, I mean, that's a whole nother thing, yeah? And you're missing out if you don't have that kind of confidence. Now, granted, you can look back at your decision for Jesus. I made the prayer and all this. That's my confidence. Okay, good. I mean, for some of you, it'll get you there. For others, it'll drive you out of the faith. So before you fall out of the faith, remember that the baptism is there so that you can know the promise is there. You don't have to rely on your own heart uh, at the end of the day. And that's why I have to say, you know, if, you, if you reject infant baptism, what you reject is grace. And I love, I have friends, good friends who reject infant baptism. But, you know, you won't let that kid be under grace, which is amazing. And the parents are given to do that. But now again, where's the grace? In going to grandma, who's a recalcitrant trin- sinner in her sin, and then trying to use something that's given for starting her faith, confirming her faith, and feeding her faith when she doesn't have any. Well, the infant doesn't have faith. You don't know that. And yes, he does, because the parents are going to teach that kid after that, and because the kid's been in the presence of the word the whole time, and did John the Baptist not leap in the womb? Come on. Come on. Anyway, the arguments are so so clear. It's not about what's right or wrong. When we're in these arguments as, as modern people, Baptist Lutherans, we're not arguing about what the Bible says. We're not. The Lutherans are just so right, it's like not even close, okay? But what we're arguing about is how we see humans, what our capabilities are, how we view God's ultimate mercy. Now, the amazing thing, Meredith, this is amazing to me, and you've noticed this. While the Baptists can't talk about grace, they sure do live with it a lot, though. They sing about it, they, but, they, but then it's all kind of here and there, and they also have this whole, like, you got to put on the show, but Lutherans do this too, put on the show. Anyway, why don't you join in on this? Yeah. Well, as I listen to you talk about it, it's it seems the distinction between infant baptism and a, an adult um, being baptized as their mind regenerates backwards, degenerates. degenerates backwards into the infant state. Calcifies. Is um, that they've already hardened their heart. I mean, they're essentially in the position of Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so... In this time, Jeremy can look at this as um, God using it to make Jeremy mm-hmm. strengthen in his faith mm-hmm. as he pleads the Psalter for his grandmother yeah, yeah. and speaks the words I mean, to her as her mind goes. I don't at all recommend you know, uh, ninja baptizing, but ninja reading the Psalter out loud in her presence for hours on end? I mean... She might be weak enough that that does just get in. You might not even ever know. And that's kind of the point, right? Um, if she's retreating to an infant state, then treat her like an infant. Read her some stories. Don't give her magic charms. Yeah. Um, the Bringing into the covenantal seal for the family through baptism uh, 
isn't about getting the kids saved as if they're not saved the day before. There is a certainty in this. There's a confidence. There's a rejoicing. We know for certain they're in the kingdom. Like we can point to it externally. Look, the promise has been given to them. But that doesn't mean that the word is not sufficient on its own. And that certainly doesn't mean that we should treat this thing. I mean, we do. I, I'm really, I'm really bothered by it. Everything they accused us of in the Reformation that would happen to our baptismal doctrine has, because we treat it like it's a charm. We we put it on and then we act worldly. You can visit any LCMS church and just, I mean, not any, many. And you'll watch, and even the faithful ones, you'll watch how the, the the surrounding membership on the outside they'll fly in for baptism, fly right back out. It's a whole magic charm for them. Come back at confirmation. Uh, we won't go. Kid has to go. <laughs> yeah. Enough of that. That's why it's falling apart. Golly. Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. Hallelujah. All right. The next question is from Rebecca. Rebecca, what's up? Hi, Pastor. How do you respond to the claims that early Christians use psychedelics during Holy Communion? I've, I've never had anyone bring that to me except here. Apparently that was asked a couple months ago, and I said something. Um, but the way I want to go with this one now, because like... First off, I have no idea what the actual like argument behind this is. It sounds like nonsense. Um, I mean, I've heard Joe Rogan talk about how like Moses was smoking dope with the burning bush kind of thing. It's like, well, dude, I mean, I know that sounds cool on the patio in the afternoon and all, but like you should read, not just watch videos. Um, but where I want to go with this is a little bit of a different direction because I, I, mean, I don't think any early Christians were doing psychotropics. <laughs> Um, it was definitely something they knew about and paganism definitely had a lot to do with it. But the idea that like the Lord's Supper was a psychotropic fest um, and that that's why it worked is like to not realize what was going on in all the pagan stuff. Okay. Uh, and that, that was already going on everywhere else and that Christians were different uh, and that we say what we believe. It's like it's written down and we tell you like there's no hiding in Christianity. We don't have any secret stuff behind all this. Right. It's, it's actually right there for you to read it. Okay. So all that said, so what if they were? So what if they... Let's, let's imagine. Let's, let's just make up some crazy drug we don't know about. Let's call it coffee. And every time they get together in the second century, before they go to the Lord's Supper, they have coffee. In fact, if they don't all have coffee, they all feel awful and snipe at each other. But after they have coffee, they go and they have their love fest and they have the, the supper and they listen to the preaching and they all go home because the psychotropic drug... Was there, and what happens? Now, you're going to, coffee's not a psychotropic drug. Are you sure? Have you studied it much? It does a lot to your brain. <laughs> but my point again is, how does someone saying that now, Joe Rogan, well, they were all smoking dope while they were at the Lord's Supper. Why does that make it not true now? In what world does that make Jesus' resurrection not true? Does that make his words about the body and blood of Christ not true? I mean, do you follow how, like, it's just a category problem with the question? It's not that I think this happened. It's that it doesn't matter if it did, and so it ends up being nothing but a red herring that you let distract you from the real stuff. Because, again, the world sets the question by asking something that ultimately is scoffing, and that's why we should reject this. They're scoffing. They can't believe that something so good as the knowledge of Jesus' resurrection would be so good as to, in fact, pull people together out of their wicked lives with a desire for more. They can't believe that. You know why? Because they like their wicked lives. They're content being in con- done discontent <laughs> in their wicked lives. Um, so, you know, how do I respond to that? I, I laugh at it. I, I give it what is worth, which is nothing. Because 
history, while not entirely knowable on every level, because it's through the eyes of all sorts of skewed people, and so you have like uh, agendas and and you know stuff gets hidden and burned, and you don't get all the history. There's still a lot of it there. Like there's so much paperwork, so that we can know what people were saying and doing. And this this loony California level, um, you know. I don't know, magical alien pamspermia approach to history uh, is, is loony. Is loony. The ancients were very understanding. They knew what we know on every level except for maybe atomic fusion and like electricity. Uh, and I don't even know that they didn't know that stuff philosophically, but they knew what we know. So what you're really trying to say when you say, well, they were all just doing psychotropics is you're saying they're all ignorant fools. And that's why I say to you, you're an ignorant fool. If you think the Christian church exists because people are ignorant and foolish, then you haven't looked at it. You've listened to stories by other people, but you've not read the fathers. You probably not read the New Testament very carefully at all. You certainly gave it just a cursory reading as if you could figure it out with one glance, which again shows you what an idiot you are. Very few books of substance can you figure out with one glance, let alone one that's multiple books packaged together over millennia of context, histories, and realities that ties together in one great paradigm and yet has so many names you can't know them all. And you're going to sit there and like opine from your couch you know, with your blunt about how you know so much. It's scoffing. And yet my response is still, so what? You scoffed and you didn't even win. Like, how foolish are you? I mean, so what? So, so you find a bunch of Greek, let's, let's just say in Corinth, it's not Corinth, right? There's a bunch of people that come out of Greek, Greek uh, mystery religion in Corinth, right? And there's some, there's some herb they chew. It's called it's called mint or something. I don't know. They chew this herb, but it's it's not mint because it like makes them feel better. I don't know the way sugar does maybe. And so they you know they chew on it all the time, but it also leads to like spikes in their their <laughs> spikes in their blood sugar level and the angry rages and they get hangry and all this kind of stuff. Like, does that make them not Christians now? Or does that mean that the Lord's Supper like didn't really work? I, it has nothing to do with it. Christianity exists because of what it proclaims, not because of some hidden secret thing nobody knows about. And if, in fact, there were people who were, as Christians in history, making use of medical substances at some point in their life, yeah, there have been and were. Has anyone ever done it as the hidden secret that makes Christianity work? No. And that's why, again, you're not really asking a question. You're trying to tell us we're idiots with a joke. And jokes are for fools. If you're arguing. Oh, there we go. I mean, if the burning bush, we don't know what this thing was. It wasn't a pot plant. Goodness gracious. It wasn't a cocaine plant. Whatever it was, it was burning and did not burn up. Okay, so this was like cosmically miraculous. So let's say it had some smoke coming off of it. Let's say Moses breathed it. And it made him feel nice. And he listened to God and then went on his way with like superpowers he didn't have before. Remember how his face shines later? He's in a tent with smoke in it, breathing the glory of God. I mean, I imagine it had an effect on the man. They weren't sitting around smoking dope, dreaming up nonsense. And that's where, again, like the question just doesn't even play on the same field. Have a nice day. (laughs) (laughs) Hallelujah. We got any more? One more. One more. From Philip. Question about demon possession. Oh, yeah. In the distant past, many people were psychological. No, not were. People with psychological ailments were treated as though they were possessed. 
given that we now have a lot of therapy remedies, chemical rebalancing medications, and behavioral therapy that have been shown to help people. There are even ways to help people with schizophrenia and multiple personality disorders. Many people, particularly in the scientific community, ask, is it possible that there never were demons involved or anything supernatural in origin, but that the people the Bible and and church have historically called demon-possessed were just suffering from psychological problems? I currently don't have a great answer with when asked, and I'm really curious about what you would mm-hmm. have to say on the matter. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I love how it moves immediately from it was all demons to it was no demons. Like that's again, it's no, that's the spectrum, right? That we only think in either or, and we've lost the ability for like complex or nuanced thought that would have three possible answers, all of which are true together. Uh, so again, this is where Solomon can really help you. Start reading Proverbs. Uh, okay, so. I am not a master of this. I'm going to speak as one who is practicing my learning of this, particularly on my own heart and conscience. Um, and uh, can I get your mic off for a second? Uh, uh, what um, I'm looking for the book, uh, Kurt, I think it was Kurt Koch, um, the, uh, the German theologian book on the occult that I, was, I shared a couple weeks ago. Um, he is very emphatic that psychology and demonology can look the same but are not the same and that there is without question you got your mic back um don't worry about it i mean it's fine it's fine um that they are connected and will look the same his position is that they can be disconnected but look the same so a guy who has epilepsy and a guy who has a demon can look exactly the same and that you don't know the difference, and that uh, foolish Christians can make a lot of trouble by trying to deal with things that are not demons as if they are, um, and that foolish secularists can cause a lot of trouble by trying to deal with things that are demons as if they're not, and that your 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 person or soul experience is not so simple as to have an either-or with regard to how we observe it all. Now, my hunch is that he's right and yet not completely right. Um, my hunch is that he's right in terms of you can't tell the difference, but that there is no difference because on some level or other, demons are always working on your psychology and your psychology is always a matter of your flesh. So even if it's not about demonic inhabitation, I mean, if you're dealing with bipolar disorder in some way, your flesh is what you're dealing with. It is your sin. It is your sinful condition. Well, I can't get rid of it. It's not my fault. It's called original sin. You inherited it. You got to live with it. You got to own it. It's a cross. No one chooses that. You got to live with it. So it's not as distinct as ignore it all, cut it apart, and throw it apart. At the same time, they're not the same thing, and you want to be careful. Now, um, again, I don't. <laughs> I'm practicing on me, wherein I have CPTSD. Right? Go look it up. Uh, and I also am pretty convinced that the best way to fight my CPTSD is by believing that it's demonic torment. Uh, not as if I know the demon by name, but by believing that the answer to it generally is the answer to torment, which is to read the Psalms in the words of Jesus and to pray them until it feels better <laughs> uh, to continue to dig into uh, what I know to be eternal truth. More so to build my mind on those things throughout the day so that they're there as a repertoire when I run into trouble. Right. So 
In that regard, though, I am attacking my psychiatry, my psychology, which is pretty much secular diagnosable, I think. I I don't think it's not at all. And yet I'm treating it with a spiritual solution. And that spiritual solution is to understand that my flesh is condemned, that my body doesn't always tell the truth, and that the Spirit of God has given me enough faith to believe His Word over what my heart says, and the more time I spend in His Word, the more I can exercise that freedom over my own flesh, over my own old man. And so again, why am I saying this? I, I I don't think the line between demonology and psychology is so black and white that it's always either or. But I do think that the approach to demonology for the last couple hundred years has been flamboyant and spectral. Uh, It's more about show, and it certainly isn't about what the scriptures say. Because if it was, you'd stop trying to cast anything out. There, there There aren't instructions in the Bible for casting. There are instructions in the Bible for praying. So if a man has epilepsy, and he's on a fit on the ground, tell me. Is it going to hurt to pray the Psalter out loud while you attend to his physical needs? Do you have to diagnose what's inside to apply the solution? The answer is no. I think that's a way healthier way. Because otherwise you're trying to get into the demon's head and you don't want to do this. We're not fighting them as if we're going to learn from them or spend time with them. We're simply bringing the light into the darkness in such a way that the darkness will flee. Now, does that mean that man's epilepsy will go away? No, not necessarily. Could it? I don't know. Probably not. I don't know. Because there's all sorts of different right now, and who knows what oppression is happening to any other person. If you listen to A Brief History of Power with Dr. Coons, one of the main things he says is that our contexts are so fragmented right now that every other every situation needs to be uh, understood by itself with its surrounding situations. Right. So this guy's having epilepsy. There's a million histories in his life. That, that lead up to this. And just walk in and declare anything is folly. But to walk in and believe none of its dark powers and principalities, that's folly too, right? Um, so think of it this way. Remember that the demon's primary game is words. It's words. And so your psychology is driven by words. And if three or four generations into really bad words, you end up with some terrible psychoses. You can't cast that out like magic, but you can fight it like it's demons lies with the truth. And that's where psychiatry isn't sufficient, even when it works. And here's the question I have is, I mean, your comment said something about how we have all these things that now will help us deal with all these things that we thought were demons, but now we know they're not. And I don't know. I've only got my life and it's 2020 post COVID, right? And all these things they say work. I don't believe them anymore. I've been through enough shrinks in my life. I don't, I don't believe them anymore. Um, <clears throat> does that mean there's no room for psychiatry? No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I said I don't trust them. And I'm certainly not going to trust them if they say there's no spiritual involvement whatsoever. That there's no other powers going on whatsoever. Um, uh, so the difference between demonology and psychology. Psychology as a word means the knowledge of the soul. No, psyche. Uh, it's not pneuma, but it's psyche, uh, and that's uh, soul, and then uh, ology, logos, word, words about the soul. So I just don't see how demonology and words about the soul have nothing to do with each other, and there's a hard line between them, even if we can observe physical manifestations that don't come from demons directly as inhabitation, right? Don't forget that torment, affliction, the external oppression of the present age is all a version of this, 
and they work most not on inhabiting you, but on oppressing your psychology, on silencing you, on making you unable to exercise your spirit and all that kind of stuff. And so that's where, I mean, no, there's, there's not as big a difference as um, you should think, but the answer is not go and try to find the demons. The answer is get into the text of scripture, believing that it will make the demons flee, make the demons flee. Oh, here's a note. So yeah, how's this for like, let's just say there's a kid who's got a demon, okay? He's like seven. He's got, he's got a legion. He throws himself into the fire, legion of demons. And the doctors are like, well, here, um, let's give him, uh, what's the big one? Uh, Valium? Valium. Let's put him on Valium. And he stops throwing himself in the fire. He's calm and in his right mind, just sits there all the time. He's still got the demon though, just nobody knows it. Now, I'm not saying that's what happens. I'm saying we don't know that doesn't happen. And when we trust the pagans and their magic as if it's God's word and set it over against God's word and say, well, God's word doesn't even have any meaning anymore. There are no demons. It's just psychology. Well, that's what the demons want. That was their game. Yeah, they, did, they, just, they just pulled one on you. Oh, man. What well, has it go? The greatest lie the devil ever pulled is convincing the world he doesn't exist. I'm not afraid of the devil. The only thing that scares me is Kaiser Soze. Um, Usual Suspects. Uh, great movie. Don't watch movies. Movies are bad for you. Interesting story. Great twist. The point is true. Uh, the devil and his modern game has been to pretend to be quiet. And he's not been quiet at all, but we think he has because we've forgotten that it's really all about his fight in the first place. Yeah. And I should say, really, God's fight to take it back from him and his loss. The devil's slow loss. A painful, everlasting retreat. Yeah, as we get stripped away from his clutches. Oh, it's great. It's great. Um, Jesus never cleanses mere psychosis. That's an important point to add to this too. Uh, So whenever Jesus is healing, he doesn't heal psychology. He heals people. And so again, you see somebody and you're like, do they have a demon? Do they have bad psychology? I'm telling you, it doesn't matter. The answer is the same. Pray the Psalter in their presence. Pray the Psalter on your own. Know the words of scripture throughout as best you can, love the lore, learn the Proverbs, and then talk. And remain in prayer when you are in the storm. Right? So so here you are, and this person has just gone into a rage fit because they have something wrong with their life. Enter prayer. Say alleluia. Walk into it with patient confidence that Christ will, will see you through this. Open the Psalms and just start reading. Uh, I started reading another book on on uh, demonology recently. One of you sent a link to a house swept clean, uh, which is something I'd mentioned a couple weeks ago. And uh, I was I was very encouraged by the early part of that book. Now I can't remember why I was encouraged, um, but it its approach to uh, its approach to believing that the final solution is prayer is very very helpful. And so um, what we know from uh, or what, what I know from all that I've read about people who write about their experiences with this stuff, right? So none of this is direct from Scripture, which is why it's problematic. But for all of them, they say, you know, the, the TV-style demon fighting is just a lie. And anytime you try to do that, you're going to get beat up if you're going to do a re- real one. Uh, the Roman Catholics seem to have a way of dealing with it, and yet they will confess it destroys their priests when they try they go in alone and they see themselves as the sacrifice and that's in their actual prayers and yet their prayers work because they've got their prayers built around actual prayers that are supposed to work and they never stop and they just go for days till it's over um, that's the anecdote right? that's the story I'm going to tell you that Jesus says this kind only comes out by prayer and you got the Psalms right in front of you and so whatever battle you're fighting 
whether it's bipolar, whether it's epilepsy, or whether it's a legion of demons in your sister or brother or whatever, right? Or yourself, um, is the same solution. That the devil flees from the words of God. He does. And the Psalms are there to put the words of God not there as theory, but there as prayer. Right? Paul, theory. He's got a couple songs. You can sing those. But Psalter, all prayer. Whole thing. It's amazing. It's really good. You should read it. Pray it. Live it. Be it. Know it's who God is. Yeah. Is that our last one? We're at 11, for sure. You want to say something? Put a capstone on the day? Let the people know that you care? Well, I think we should thank our viewers so for being awesome. here because yes. without you guys, this is kind of pointless, right? Yeah, I agree. Thank you, viewers, for being here. Thank you for listening to this. And well, what is this? Let's do that. You said this is kind of pointless. What do you think this is, them listening to us doing this? Well, you sitting here teaching in a room in our sub-basement, like... By myself. Our kids wouldn't even really be able to hear us. Yeah, yeah. Without yeah. our viewers. Yeah. The network then. Uh, the Mad Christian Network. If you have not really found that you're part of the Net- Mad Christian Network, which is to realize that this um, this modern weirdness of me being able to talk to you from my basement uh, has enabled humans that don't live near each other to impact each other. And the devil's used this to make a lot of hootenanny. But... The Mad Christian Network is intending to use this to fight back. And uh, so thank you for fighting back. Thank you for just being here to view it. Because when, when you view it, and we see those the people are viewing it, we know that our fight back, which is to make it, you know, should keep going. So, yeah, thank you. Um, and those of you, I mean, I've I got members now, too, who are increasingly um, in the trenches on these things like, is your company going to compel you to inject into your body gene therapy uh you know those kinds of things you're out there on those front lines in those lives right now having to make those decisions having to figure out how to make your religious exemption having to decide whether you're going to send your kids to school mass the rest of their lives you know that is uh, having to decide whether or not you're going to try to travel right um thank you for at this time realizing how bad it is and so you're listening to whether i'm right or wrong you're listening to me because you realize that we can't do this as it is out there. And so indeed, thank you. Because very few people are probably thanking you for that, I imagine. Most people are yelling at you about it. Um, thank you for taking a stand, uh, for seizing the opportunity to not be silent. Um, yeah. For putting your faith into practice and all this. Um, I want to say a caveat about, about inoculations. Since I said earlier about the potential of, uh, you know, what if, sin of ignorance, we destroy half the planet with inoculations... Because they're, you know, they kill us somehow. We don't know. We haven't tried them because we haven't. And that's you can go search other YouTube videos for that. Um, someone might say, uh, "Well, isn't it a sin of ignorance to not get gene therapy when you know that getting it will help people?" And this is the problem. None of us know it will do that. Um, but I would also say. Uh, there is a big category difference here between knowing that what God has sent is a plague upon us, that we can walk through it okay, um, and deciding to take action with twisted new magical things in order to try to avoid what God has sent as his wrath. There's just a big difference in category there, right? Now, I'm not saying that the vaccines are that. I'm saying that not taking the vaccine can't be that. Okay? So you do have like this, we need to, 
and you have this God will, and and there's something there. But I mentioned earlier, you know, be still and know versus act. What's your action going to be? And and the thing is, you can only accuse someone of not being a Christian when they're not acting according to what God has said to do. And He said nothing about gene therapy. He said nothing about avoiding death, actually, really. So uh, you know about staying healthy and 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 not getting sick in old age. Like nothing about that. So. Instead, what he largely said, that was we just looked at it, 2 Corinthians, expect to be given over into death every day, all day long, knowing that this manifests in you a hope in the life to come, which will not disappoint, right? So again, uh, I am not going to say that gene therapy is a sin of ignorance. I'm going to say it might be, but I'm going to say you can't say that someone who doesn't do it is committing a sin of ignorance. Uh, they can't be, because this is a newfangled modern magic technology, right? And so to declare it to be morally necessary um, is, to, is to speak where God has not spoken. Um, whereas to do it without knowledge and have it turn out to be sin is what a sin of ignorance would be. Uh, so that was why I brought that up as an example. Um, and although I do personally think this is a real problem, um, I also can understand how out in the madness right now, people could not get that information and completely think I'm off the rocker on that one piece. Um, and so you know, what am I going to do? Yell at you through the camera? I'm going to do that anyway, right? But... Um, so just to make that clear, uh, there is a category difference there. And I think it's a really good example of what um, ig- sins of ignorance look like. It's when you do things that are harmful to you and to others without knowing it. That, that's like the definition. Okay? Um, having a virus take out the planet isn't us. Well, maybe it was over in Wuhan, but now it's not you and me. right? So we're not, it's not up to us to stop the virus. Um, but if we try to stop the virus, we might, in fact, do it in an evil way. And that's, that's where you want to be wise. wise. The real wisdom is this. I mean, I, I'm not going to call names out here, but we were talking recently about people who, friends, who, um, acquaintances, who really don't want to die. Badly. So badly. Oh, the virus. Don't want to die. I'm probably going to die this year. I'm probably going to die this year. Uh, it's about time I die. Like, which one? I mean, don't wallow in the muck with those who have no hope. Lift up your head all the more as you see the day approaching as you're a Christian. This is the Mad, Mad Christian Saturday morning chill. Jesus Christ is risen. You are paid for. That makes you immortal. He won't be long, no. The water sees it, seals it. The food feeds it. This is Christianity. You found the Mad Christian Saturday morning chill with Jonathan and Meredith. Patreon.com slash redfisk. Brief is your power on iTunes. Mad Christian Discord. Us to chill on Discord. Rock on, hallelujah. Was that worth a dollar? Click the Patreon link in the show notes to sign up. Pretty please?